The origin of Satan has become quite infamous over time. He began as an angel made by God, originally named Lucifer, meaning the bearer of light. Lucifer became obsessed with his own beauty and intelligence. They began to desire the honor and power that belonged to God, corrupting him and forcing God to cast him down to hell, which is when he changed his name from Lucifer to Satan, meaning adversary. However, demons often predict the future based on observations, as demons inherently are extremely intelligent creatures. They can predict, but with very limited accuracy. They do not possess a physical body. However, they are capable of taking on human form if they need to. Many artists have depicted Satan in various ways, such as a dragon, a serpent, or a mythical looking creature. He is often pictured on a rock displaying a large set of wings. As an angel, he was often drawn as a man bearing a torch, aka the bearer of light. However, Satan is without physical form, so it's near impossible to describe his appearance, but depictions of the years are truly terrifying nonetheless. Hell is undoubtedly a dreadful place filled with pain and suffering. The ones subjugated to it are destined to eternal suffering. They share their misery in the company of the most sinister creatures conventionally known as demons. I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning to get a glass of water. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I was pulled out of my body, like being sucked out of your body. And I found myself falling through the air and I landed in this actual prison cell in hell. Rough hewn stone walls, bars, a filthy, stinking, dirty prison, like a dungeon with these demonic creatures in this cell. What were they like? Reptilish in appearance, bumps and scales all over their bodies. Yeah. Uh, these particular two were about 12 or 13 feet tall. There's even scripture for that, but uh, first of all, they were blaspheming and cursing God. They had an extreme hatred for God. They were deformed, twisted, grotesque creatures, and then they directed that hatred towards me. And I wondered why would I have done to them, but the one picked me up, threw me into the wall, tremendous strength. I collapsed on the floor. I felt bones broken. The other one dug his claws into my chest, tore the flesh open. You have a body in hell, but it can withstand this torment. And uh, they had absolutely no mercy an extreme hatred and they began tormenting me i did feel pain but i understood most of it was being blocked and the lord explained to me on the way back that he did allow me to feel some of the pain to relate to people that it's not metaphorical or allegorical it's not a state of the mind it's real literal pain you're going to feel in hell yes i was taken out of the cell and i was placed over next to this large raging pit of fire mm -hmm. this pit was not the lake of fire talked about in revelation 2013 through 15, but it's the current hell, Sheol, and those, this pit was just a huge cap, uh, hole in the ground with flames raging high up into this open cavern. And again, it wasn't metaphorical or allegorical, real literal flames. There were people literally inside this pit burning. It's the most awful sight to see a person on fire, burning, screaming. The screams were so loud from just millions of people at the top of their lungs screaming. There's no conversation. You don't get to be with people. You're kept isolated and apart and the, the demons are tormenting people. Uh, you, you have no conversation. The, the smells are so foul and putrid, the most disgusting odors, and you're actually breathing in sulfur, and uh, mm. sulfur that's burning is actually toxic. So I wondered how could it be alive breathing this toxic, foul air, but you continue living. Uh, there's not enough air to breathe either. So you have to fight and gasp for even the tiniest bit of oxygen. It's the most horrible thing. People's minds can't even imagine the horrors of hell. 
Your mind can't even go there. Any one of these things would kill you. And, and the darkness, I only could see a little bit through the flames, but the darkness is, just consumes any of the light from the flames is so dark that you can actually feel the darkness. Exodus 10.21 talks about a darkness that may be felt, yeah. so it's not an exaggeration. Because there's so much evil and wickedness in this place, there's no love of any kind. You understand you're never going to get rescued. There's no angels to protect you. There's no one to talk to. So far in this Angels and Demons Explained series, we've seen a varied mix of wicked entities from both the Bible and various associated texts. But one we haven't spoken about yet is the big bad boss of all demons everywhere, the most corrupt and wicked creature in all of scripture, and perhaps in all walks of life for believers. Of course, this is the devil, the master of darkness, the ruler of the underworld, and the ultimate adversary of God himself. His name, as many of you might have heard, is Satan, and he also serves as the nemesis to righteous men and women everywhere. As the most evil being in most religions, the devil has earned himself a ton of tropes and features, some of which we will aim to look at in greater detail in this video. From the stories told about him in scripture, to more literal works from Dante's Divine Comedy and John Milton's Paradise, We'll also be taking a look at Satan's many names, what he represents, how he is portrayed in different works, and how his influence and character has evolved over the years. Whilst we often see Satan depicted in a multitude of different ways, there doesn't appear to be one true way. Across the Bible and other scripture, there doesn't appear to be an area where Satan is ever described. It wasn't until the 9th century did Christian artists begin to depict Satan with horns, hooves, tails, and often or not, as seriously hairy. A pitchfork was also shoved into his hands, though there is no mention from scripture that Satan wielded any sort of weapon. In fact, in most cases, he is depicted naked, almost as if to show how much of a shameful figure he is, but in other more modern depictions, he is a winged humanoid monster that has red eyes pale skin, and usually sporting the number of the beast somewhere. Perhaps the first place that many will think to look for Satan is the Bible, and perhaps one of the most interesting accounts pertaining to Satan is in the form of the Book of Revelations. It is understood that the angel once known as Lucifer was a close ally to God, a perfect creation of beauty and excellence, a being God cherished above all. But the angel grew arrogant with his position, and soon believe that he ought to have been risen above God, and that the world and everything in creation ought to have bowed before him. In his belief, many of the other angels shared his notion, 
for they believed Lucifer to be more powerful than God, and decided to side with him. In Revelation 12.7, we are told that a war broke out in heaven, and many scholars perceive this to be the war between Lucifer and God, in that a civil war between angels erupted, with one side led by Lucifer and the other by Archangel Michael. We are told, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. It is believed here that Lucifer transformed into a dragon in order to defeat Archangel Michael, but in doing so, he was still defeated, and both he and his angels were cast out from heaven. Here we see this dragon, which is thought to have been Lucifer, take on the name of Satan, a being who now leads the whole world astray. Through this section, many believe that Lucifer and Satan are the same being. Lucifer was the angel who betrayed God, and once he is cast out and no longer an angel, he adopts the new name Satan and becomes something wicked and evil. But there are those that dispute this, believing that Lucifer was simply a term used by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 14.12, where he says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? In this, some scholars believe that the use of Lucifer here isn't a name per se, but instead a description, meaning lightbringer in Latin. Or that Isaiah is referring to Satan as Lucifer, because he once was the brightest angel, or he who shunned the brightest, and that it is such a shame that he turned out the way he did. In any case, Lucifer has since become synonymous with Satan, the two terms being interchangeable in most modern cases to describe the devil. This is just two of the names that the devil has, for he is also known as Beelzebub, the Antichrist, and Moloch. In the Greek Old Testament, Satan is referred to as Diablos, but it is also thought that Diablos is in reference to wicked people or spirits. Diablos was also thought to mean slanderer, an act demonstrated by Satan as he slanders the word and name of God. In early Germanic, the term Diablos was used, and also an equivalent of the term diabolical. Abaddon is also another term frequently equipped with Satan, Abaddon being a place of destruction in the Old Testament, as well as an angel of death in some interpretations and various law. In the classification by Peter Binsfield, both Lucifer and Satan appear to be two separate entities, in that Lucifer maintains his role as the demon of pride, and Satan takes on the role as the demon of wrath. This actually fits in with the fall of the angels after having been cast out of heaven, in that it was Lucifer's pride that led him to being expelled in the first place, which saw him hurtling towards earth, where he seems to become Satan. Satan, as mentioned, is identified as the demon of wrath in Peter Binsville's classification, and this is most fitting, given that he becomes vengeful against God, and equally vengeful against mankind, those which he views as his enemies. But going back to the Bible, we understand that Satan becomes the embodiment of all things evil. Satan exists through many different forms to tempt man off the righteous path, an act he does not only because he hates mankind, for they are God's favourite creation, but also to get back at God for having defeated him. It leads us to the idea believed by many that Satan takes the form of the serpent in Genesis, the very same serpent that tempted Adam and Eve into eating the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. 
It certainly would give the serpent a motive for being so deceitful, because as Satan, he wants nothing more than to bring pain upon God. By tricking his own creations against him, he uses mankind to get back at God, and to rob him of having loyal and trustworthy beings in his garden. In this, Satan gets the upper hand over God, a small victory perhaps, but one he relishes in, because he has ruined something that God loves. There's also the line from Revelations, as mentioned earlier, that refers to Satan as that ancient serpent, where it said, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Here we see Satan identified as a serpent, which could be in reference to both his dragon form and his snake form. He is also noted as leading the whole world astray, something the snake in the Garden of Eden essentially takes responsibility for, in that he deceived the first man and woman, and thus the rest of humanity bore the consequences of. In Hebrew, the term Satan was thought to be a noun that meant accuser or adversary, a pretty fitting term if you think about how Satan operates in some Jewish beliefs. While Satan himself is not necessarily considered to be the big bad evil in the Torah or in the Talmud, he does appear at the command of God to deliver his will, whereby he serves as an obstacle for the evil prophet Balaam, who is hired to curse the Jews. Through this, he could very well be considered an adversary, not necessarily to God, but an adversary in general. We also see Satan appear in the book of Job, whereby Job is cursed by God after a wager with Satan to see if Job would still worship God if he was met with misfortune. In fact, God actually grants Satan the freedom to do his worst against Job, and thus, Satan comes to serve as something of an agent of God, in that he does what God tells him, so long as he gets to hurt humans in some capacity. This might link to him being the accuser, in that it is he who brings about punishment to man, for he serves God in some loose manner to facilitate his vengeance. It could also be that God has complete control over Satan, and that he uses the evil demon to bring upon wrath on those who deserve it. We often see the non-capitalized form of Satan appear in the Jewish texts, and it is understood that this refers not to THE Satan, but instead any man or being that provides an obstacle, which makes sense, given that the term Satan also derives from a verb meaning to obstruct or to oppose. Meanwhile, we also see the usage of Ha-Satan, and in this instance, it is believed that THE Satan is being discussed. For the most part though, Satan appears to have a far larger role in Christian theology than in Judaism. And so, allow us to return to the Bible, where we look at the very first instance where Satan is mentioned. Satan acts in the Bible exactly the way in which you would expect him to. Whilst he never seems to physically engage man, he does appear to tempt him in a variety of different ways. We see this in Chronicles 21, where King David is tempted by Satan into conducting a census on the Israeli people, the army specifically. It might not seem like that big of a sin, but it is believed that by counting his fighting men, David did not trust God would see his victory, and that David chose to confide in numbers and strategy instead of pretty much taking God's word for it. It might also be because David demonstrated pride and greed, in that he began to see the men as his own, and that they were his to count up, and not God's. Furthermore, you might also say that because David accepted an order from Satan to count his men, God felt betrayed, and so through the prophet Gad, he gave David three choices of his punishment. 
These include either a three year famine, three months of being defeated in battle, or three days of plague, with an angel of God allowed to descend upon his lands and butcher and destroy any part of it. David accepts the latter, and thousands of people die from the plague, and an angel gets to run amok of the place, slaying the people and destroying their buildings. While some of you may say that David's punishment is severely disproportionate to his sin, it goes to show believers the detriment of even listening to Satan's words. David had by no means the idea to count his people, until Satan gave him the idea, and by accepting Satan's idea and running with it, David is choosing Satan over God. The Bible makes it pretty clear here that negotiating, entertaining or even listening to Satan's words are a big no-no, and that he who does risks getting a pretty considerable punishment. Satan in the Bible will go to any lengths to bring man down and to shame him before God. As we've seen thus far, we see him trick Adam and Eve, we see him coax David into doing something he knows God will dislike, and in Zechariah 3, we see him become the fashion police as he mocks the high priest Joshua for presenting before God in dirty clothes. While Satan isn't given a voice here, we understand that he was present along with another angel by God's side, and that when Joshua appeared to them, Satan took issue with how he was dressed. We know this because the angel seeks to remedy the situation straight away, saying, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. It seems like a bizarre thing for Satan to get worked up over. This is because Satan probably couldn't find anything wrong about Joshua, and the best he could do to turn God against him was to target his clothes and imply that Joshua was neglectful and disrespectful to appear before him as he did. But the angel, whether this be an independent angel or an angel acting through God, doesn't see this as a big deal and destroys Satan's argument. He gives Joshua new clothes thus leaving Satan without a leg to stand on. In this, we see that Satan does what he can to get God to punish mankind, even if they don't necessarily deserve it. He hates mankind so much that he will clutch at straws if he has to, in order to get man to feel God's wrath in the way that he once did. The enmity for man is palpable, that he will do anything to hurt man, whether this be through deceptions, temptations, or outright lies. But we seldom see Satan actually physically get involved with mankind, in that for all his hatred, he never tries to fight us one on one. He enjoys leading us down a path of destruction, and seems to be all the more happy to allow us to destroy ourselves, possibly because he knows that if we turn against God by our own volition, we would hurt God more than, say, him swooping down and attacking us. But we do get to see the power and mercilessness of Satan in the book of Job, where we see him hurt Job directly, and where we do get to see a glimpse of his awful power. For those of you who are not familiar with the book of Job, I advise you to check out my video on it in the Biblical Stories Explained series. Essentially, we are told that Job was a righteous man who did everything by the book. He had a farm where he raised crops, had a great family, and earned a decent amount of money. Job was living the dream, and he thanked God for his blessings every day. God turned to Satan and proceeded to, well, kind of brag about how great Job is. He tells Satan that Job is an upright man who embraces him and shuns evil. Satan scoffs at this. He says, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. 
but now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So God obliges Satan and tells him to pretty much do his worst against Job, but that he is not allowed to harm Job's person. We then see Job's life absolutely ruined in the space of a day. We see his cattle stolen, his servants put to death by raiders, his children crushed under a building, and his crops destroyed by a fire that fell from the sky. Job is of course heartbroken, but he still thanks God and remains loyal. God then tells Satan that his notions on Job were wrong, and that even though he had taken everything away from Job, Job did not turn against him. So Satan ups the ante and tells him, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. God again tells Satan to do his worst. We finally see Satan in action. Instead of resorting to his deceptions and his temptations and lies, he actually descends upon Job and inflicts physical harm upon him by casting painful sores upon his body. It only shows us how evil Satan is, but also that he isn't just all bark with no bite. Job is put into intense agony as a result of these sores, and so it certainly is a stark reminder that Satan is bad news. It shows us that whilst he is a being that is capable of bringing terrible calamities, and that whilst he should not be feared, he is an entity worthy of being cautious of. Although many believe that the only reason Satan strikes here is because God allows him to, where in normal circumstances, Satan would not be permitted to physically strike, which is why we don't see him do it often. For those wondering, Job goes on a roller coaster of discovery, as he questions God and his own faith, but for the most part, he still remains loyal, if not utterly sceptical. He is rewarded in the end with his life back, but only after much mental and physical suffering, a sad tale for a man who really did nothing wrong. Satan also features quite prominently in the Gospels by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and as always, takes on the role as a deceiver and a tempter, but in some very unique ways. Firstly, there's the account in Matthew 4, where Jesus is led up into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Whilst here, Satan comes to Jesus and reminds him that if he is the Son of God, then he needn't starve, where he can turn the stones around him into loaves of bread. But Jesus resists him, telling him, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here Jesus sets an example to believers in how best to deal with Satan, and that is to simply dismiss him. Jesus reaffirms his affinity with God, and Satan is at a loss. But far be it from Satan to give up so easily, he takes Jesus to the holy city and to the pinnacle of the temple and tells him to jump, for if he jumps, God will surely save him, for he is the son of God. Here we see Satan's frustration, for he had started his temptation of Jesus with just getting him to eat bread, but now he's actually trying to kill him by getting him to jump. But Jesus recognises this and tells him, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus' dismissal of Satan is made to look effortless, for he of all people cannot be tempted by evil as the Son of God. Here, Jesus serves as an inspiration to believers and likely encourages them to aspire to be the same. But finally, we see Satan take Jesus to a very high mountain where he shows him the vast kingdoms of the world, and he tells Jesus that he will give him all of it and more 
if he bows down now and worships him instead. Here we see Satan still clinging on to this idea that he should be the one who is worshipped, that he is greater than God, and he is the one at liberty to give kingdoms unto men, when in actuality he doesn't have any of this power at all. Satan evidently suffers from delusions of grandeur, and Jesus sees right through this. Jesus actually gets quite firm with Satan, telling him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve only him. Here believers are given another model of behaviour when facing Satan, and that is to be strong, be adamant, and do not be afraid to tell him to leave you alone. Notice that when Jesus does this, Satan actually does back off, and no further attempt to goad him off the righteous path is made again. Yet another interesting account of Satan's behaviour and his abilities are described in John 13, where Jesus is telling his disciples that one of them will indeed betray him. When Simon Peter asks him who he is speaking of, Jesus replied, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread, when I have dipped it in the dish. Jesus then dips the bread in the dish, and hands it to Judas Iscariot, who after receiving the bread, is actually infiltrated by Satan. John tells us, After he received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. It's a pretty bold statement to make, for it almost vindicates Judas of being the traitor that would end up selling out Jesus to the Romans. While you might say Judas was weak in that he allowed Satan to take control over him, we never get to see this interaction. We don't know what Satan said, nor do we know how much power Satan used against Judas in getting him to ultimately betray Jesus. But going by how Satan doesn't seem to be able to do anything without the consent of his victims, it is likely that Satan promised Judas something that he couldn't refuse, or that he bullied Judas into allowing him to possess him. In any case, Judas falls victim to Satan's scheming, and this leads to the crucifixion of Jesus. In this, Satan scores yet another victory against God, and we see this back and forth between the two sides throughout the Bible, a regular battle between good and evil that sees the scales tipped back and forth. It again serves to remind us of how cunning Satan actually is, and that believers should be mindful of his tricks, for if he is unable to infiltrate your mind, he could very well infiltrate the mind of someone you love and trust, and use them to hurt you for your faith. In any case, while Satan does get some victories here and there, those who are pure of mind and body are usually those that earn God's blessings. The moral of most of these interactions is don't trust the devil, don't listen to the devil, and maybe just don't even talk to him. Block and delete that arsehole. For real. In almost all arguments over the Bible, it is generally agreed that regardless of what happens, God is going to defeat Satan. And this gives believers some hope and some encouragement to keep being righteous. As Paul the Apostle tells us in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In the parables of Jesus, most notably the parable of the sower, we learn that those who fail to really understand the Gospels are those that have already been deceived, or infiltrated by Satan. It's also understood from the parables, much like Paul tells us in Romans 16.20, that Satan will be destroyed, and that those who follow him will perish on the day of judgement, and that they will be committed to an eternal fire. This is furthermore supported by Revelations 20.10, a section appropriately titled Satan's Doom, and we are told, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulphur, 
where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We've spoken about Satan having a minimal role in Judaism, in that many Jews do not believe in his existence as a supernatural being, but more so as an abstract idea. Many rabbis have interpreted the word of Satan, often the uncapitalized form, as referring to corporeal and human enemies, perhaps even disbelievers or those that refute God. Meanwhile, the Kabbalah presents Satan as sort of an emissary or agent of God, one who seeks to tempt humans into sinning so that he may serve as their judge in the heavenly court. Through this idea, Satan is employed by God to root out evil humans, sort of like an undercover cop who entraps his victims and exposes them. A similar belief exists in some Islamic interpretations of Iblis, the devil in the Quran, who was once a jinn made from smokeless fire. Man, on the other hand, was made from clay, and so when Allah requests his angels to bow before man, Iblis refuses. Iblis is cast out for his pride and disobedience of Allah, but one idea is that Iblis still serves Allah in that he tempts man into sin to prove to Allah that man really isn't all that great. Of course, this is just one idea, and we'll look at Iblis in a bit more detail later on. Meanwhile, in the Hebrew Bible, there exists a heavenly prosecutor known as the Satan, and he is a member of the angelic hierarchy known as the sons of God, those that serve Yahweh. The Satan is seen to prosecute the kingdom of Judah, and also test the loyalty of Yahweh's followers in a similar way to Job, by forcing them to suffer. Over time, this Satan figure gained more notoriety, and soon he was viewed as a malevolent being, and one to be despised for his wickedness. The Book of Jubilees, an apocryphal Jewish work, sees this Satan character described as Mastema, and Mastema is seen to negotiate with Yahweh to let him keep some of the fallen angels that had turned against him. Yahweh agrees, and Mastema uses the fallen angels to tempt humans into sinning, so as to determine whether they are righteous or not, or to punish them for their offences. By the Middle Ages, Satan started to be taken a little less seriously, or at least mocked by certain writers and playwrights. Often he would appear in plays as a comedic character, one who tried to come across as evil, but usually ended up embarrassing himself. While he would try to convey himself as masterfully evil, he would usually end up doing something stupid, and inadvertently reveal himself to be masterfully foolish. His role in these plays usually saw him taken advantage of by the very people he sought to manipulate, and often or not would come across as more of a nuisance than a serious antagonist. But Satan in reality during these times was still an overarching menace, one who worked behind the scenes of society to corrupt and deceive. We see this in that witches were considered to be the consorts of demons, and that they could perform sexual acts with demons, and sometimes Satan himself, in exchange for magical powers. These consultations with Satan would otherwise include the summoning of him to seek counsel, to sacrifice unbaptized babies to him, or as aforementioned, a straight-up booty call. During this time, women were condemned and often executed, for the church soon began to believe that witchcraft was an activity organised by Satan himself. In the past, the power of Satan was undeniable for Christians worldwide, and many communities today still hold the father of evils in the same chilling regard. Many believers today choose to guard against Satan by surrounding themselves in their faith 
or by surrounding themselves in merry company of family and friends, for it is believed that Satan hates happiness and so will often keep away, seeking to choose easier, more vulnerable targets for his work. In Arabic, meanwhile, we have the word shaitan, which does sound similar to Satan. The shaitan, however, are evil spirits in Islam, sometimes considered as demons or devils, which work to do exactly that which Satan does, and that is to lure people into corruption. Often, this is thought to be done by whispering in the victim's ear, encouraging them to sin. Shaitan, or the singular shaitan, is sometimes referred to as Satan himself, but the more common name for Satan in Islam is Iblis. Where Satan serves as something of the root of all evil, in Islam, Iblis is not necessarily the cause of evil, but more so a tempter that gets man to initiate the evil by his own hand. We understand from many surahs in the Quran that Allah asked all the angels to bow before Adam, who Allah viewed as a magnificent creation. The angels all obeyed, but Iblis, who wasn't exactly a true angel, given that he was created from fire, and considered sometimes to be a spirit known as a jinn, or the very first jinn, claimed he was superior to Adam, and that he should not have to prostrate before him like the others. Allah then expels Iblis for showing so much pride, and condemns him to Jahannam, or hell if you will. From then on, Iblis was considered to be an ungrateful and spiteful creature, one who hated man for who he blamed for losing his place. In an effort to demonstrate his hatred towards man, and his desire to get them to suffer the same fate as him, he attempts to lead humanity astray. Allah allows him to do this of course, for by doing so, Allah is able to see who is truly righteous, and who truly deserves a place in paradise. Some Muslims also believe that Satan, or Iblis, is able to create insecurities in the mind, as well as to stimulate desires which can lead us to sin. It's thought that when a believer successfully resists Satan, he returns again with new temptations later on, and that this becomes a never-ending battle, and thus a true testament to one's character, depending on how much he resists. If a believer feels that they are overwhelmed by Satan's temptations, they are advised to seek refuge with Allah, and that he will help them through this difficult period. Finally, there is of course Satanism. In theistic Satanism, which you may have heard of as devil worship, believers here worship Satan as a deity, and they entreat to Satan the same way one may entreat to God. Whilst I myself am not so well versed in theistic Satanism unfortunately, it is known that there are many different independent groups and cabals, all with varying degrees of worship and ideas perhaps something for us to dive into in another video. Atheistic Satanism, meanwhile, is a little different. Many might know of the Satanic Temple, or the Levian Satanists, two groups which identify with the practice of Satanism. What makes them different from theistic Satanists though, is that they do not believe Satan exists, not at least in the biblical sense, but more like a rational, neutral figure who symbolises liberty and individual achievement and empowerment. They believe in the prideful, carnal nature of Satan as a symbol of a very human characteristic and something that should be promoted. Satan is not a being here, but more so a concept, a belief of something powerful that represents man's ability to achieve his potential. Levian Satanists, meanwhile, focus more on the name of Satan, that very adversary that we spoke about in the beginning of the video. It is this adversarial nature that they choose to adopt when it comes to religion, 
in that they seek to question spiritual belief systems that they believe are detrimental to the enjoyment of life. Members of these groups also hold science as a key virtue to development, and that religion should not infringe on the advancement of the human race. We also see Satan depicted in some interesting ways in classical literature, such as Dante's Inferno, where he's shown to be a giant demon, one who appears in the ninth circle of hell, to be frozen in place. Here he is said to have three faces, and a pair of black wings. According to Dante, in each of his mouths, Satan chews on Marcus Junius Brutus, Gaius Cassius, and Judas Iscariot, the former who betrayed Julius Caesar, and the latter who betrayed Jesus. Here, Dante attributes Julius Caesar and Jesus Christ as being two of the greatest humans in history, given that Caesar formed the new order of government, whilst Jesus formed the new order of religion. Dante also tells us of the freezing cold wind that comes about as Satan beats his wings, ice-cold wind that keeps him and other demons frozen in place, within the ninth circle. Meanwhile, in the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, we see an almost comical interpretation of Satan, that highlights the hypocrisy of some holy men, whereby a friar lands in hell only to be told that there are millions of friars here too. When he doesn't immediately find the rest of his holy brethren, Satan appears and reveals to him that the others all live inside his anus. In the poem Paradise Lost, however, Satan appears to be the tragic protagonist, one who suffered defeat because of his own pride. He is also seen to be here as a tragic character, one who holds some merit in that he dares to oppose the rule laid down by God, something that is echoed as being heroic in this text. It just goes to show how much of a complex character Satan is, in that there are those who of course view him as detestable and wicked, but also those who find good qualities in him, such as Satanists, or the poet John Milton. Satan has served in the world in a variety of different ways, not only as an inspiration for some of the most famous literary pieces, but also in a cautionary manner, reminding believers of the faith to turn away from his temptations and to stay on the righteous path. He is also a reminder of the balance of good and evil, in that without one, the other cannot exist. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the garden has geography, it is a subset of earth, so one of the first things we have to realize is that the whole earth wasn't Eden, and Eden wasn't the whole earth. Um, and again, it has specific geography, even though the geography, you know, there, there are a lot of questions that surround it, especially, you know, it, this, this material is written after the flood. So does, like, wouldn't that mess up the geography, like with the rivers and, you know, before the flood and after the flood? I mean, I, don't, I really don't think those kinds of questions are the point, though, but that that isn't to say that there wasn't such a place. I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with, with saying, yeah, there was such a place. But the bigger picture that is even reflected in the geography because biblical geography when it comes to divine encounter is often not intending to give us a place where we could go find, you know, latitude and longitude. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But in this case, there's a whole lot more going on. Um, there's a reason why Eden is described as a garden. Eden, you know, fundamentally is where God comes to earth. God comes to earth, he's going to start, you know, he, he creates the world, he has a reason for creating it, he certainly doesn't need to live in it. And in, in the ancient Near Eastern world, gods lived in gardens. Okay, 
They also lived on mountains. And there's a reason why Eden is called a mountain in Ezekiel 28. Well, is, is it a garden or is it a mountain? The answer is, well, yeah. Yeah, it, <laughs> both, of, both of these these descriptive phrases, these metaphors are used of the place where God has come to be with man on earth, you know, for a reason, you know, there's this concept in old Testament thought called the cosmic mountain or the cosmic garden. And it's the realm of the gods. And usually the worldview is that, well, this is where the gods are and it's not where humans belong. Humans are, are forbidden for the most part. In the biblical mindset, that is not true at all. Humans were created to be fit for sacred space, for the cosmic garden, the cosmic mountain, from the very beginning. This is where God wants them. This is what he intends. He wants people to be with him. The ancient Near Eastern view isn't like that, even though they use the same terminology. You know, why gardens? Well, if, if you're living in a world where it's arid and it's basically a subsistent culture, and unless you're a king or something, a, a garden is a place where there's lush vegetation. There's never any want of things to eat. There's enough water. It, it's paradise. There's a reason why it's portrayed as paradise. When, and surely if the gods are somewhere on earth, it must be paradise. Is that, you know, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't lack for anything. You know, mountains are what they are because they're remote. They're inaccessible. They, they create a distinction and a barrier between the gods and humans. So the, these are, these are, you know, it's, it's the language of place. There, there's metaphor involved to teach us that there's a, a firm distinction between gods and men, between the divine world and, and human beings. But, but scripture's you know, story really begins with God's desire to have people with him. And that's a fundamental difference. And, you know, you know, there, this plays out in Scripture in, in a lot of ways. After Eden, you know, we know the story about Adam and Eve being expelled, and then the place is guarded. The tree of life is guarded by, you know, cherubim. Even tree of life, you know, the source of life is in this place. Well, what place? Well, where God is. Okay, there's no death there. It's where God is. God is is associated with life and not death. Um, after Eden, you know, we we get we get mountains. You know, we get Sinai. Uh, when God, you know, leaves with his people from Sinai to go to the land that he has promised, he travels, you know, inside the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. And when and when it's stationary, we set up the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is direct is decorated to remind people of a garden. You know, we have a tree of life in there. We've got, you know, the, the food, you know, the, the, you know, the, the bread of life. You know, we, we've got specific markers of, of geography uh, that remind people of this place, this other place. You know, when we get the temple eventually, why is the temple decorated like a, like a lush forest with animals and plants? Well, it's to make you think of, of the garden. You know, and why is that garden place put on Mount Zion? Well, because that's where gods live. They, they live on mountains. You know, elevated places, and they live in gardens. I mean, again, the, these are these are just ideas, conceptual, you know, metaphors that that reflect the worldview, that are designed to teach us something. It doesn't mean these places aren't real. Obviously, Zion's real, Sinai's real. I don't see any reason to think that there wasn't an Eden, but it's just bigger than that. And when you get to the New Testament, there are interesting things that happen in gardens, 
or they're not. Okay. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, why why do so many divine encounters, why are they marked with a tree or occur at a tree? Why is divine revelation often dispensed in the vicinity of a tree? Why does Joshua bury the word of God at a tree and erect a shrine there? Because the, the, the trees are markers of, of the original tree, you know, where God met with people, you know, the tree of life. I mean, these things just get carried on through scripture. Why is the Messiah referred to as a branch, a stump of a tree? Again, the, the, this, the language is intentional. It's supposed to connect the thing being talked about with something else. That is part of the 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 meta narrative, you know, of scripture, the supernatural epic, you know, that we call salvation history. There there are reasons for the vocabulary, but again, we these are all trajectories we can pursue, you know, if if you want to discuss them. But we don't we don't really read our Bible this way, you know. We we tend to sort of default to, well, a tree's that thing I could I could hang a rope on and make a swing. You know, or it's got it's got leaves. You know, or, or you know, we 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 tend to to overly literalize things. And what I mean by that is we don't think conceptually about this this object or this place the way biblical writers would would like us to think and the way they were thinking. How does Satan fit into this story and kind of help us piece together in Ezekiel twenty eight with uh, Genesis chapter three? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14 is, and this is the key word, is about Satan. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, they're, what they're about, two kings, you know, one of Babylon, one of Tyre that are basically, you know, you know poster children for hubris. Okay. Mm -hmm, sure. And so the prophets, the prophets respectively <laughs> are going after them. But my view is that, and again, it's not just my view, it's a, you know, I didn't, I didn't invent the view. There are lots of people who share it, that the writers respectively of these chapters are drawing on the story of a, a divine rebel in the council, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the hubris of that entity wanting to be like the most high, mm -hmm. uh, is, is the backdrop for what they are accusing these human kings of. I mean, basically, you, this, is, this is the kind of hubris this takes. You know, Ezekiel 28, you think you're a god. You think, you, think, you know, you're, <clears throat> where you live is, is, the, is the Moshav, you know, El, you know, the, the dwelling place of, of God. And it's, it comes right out of Canaanite. There's a lot of Babylonian stuff, you know, in Isaiah 14, which we would expect because it's the king of Babel. Um, you know, you have council language, you have a, a member of the council that essentially wants autonomy, wants to be the one in the, in the seat of the gods, uh, where, you know, where the decision-making occurs, wants to be in charge of that. And so that notion is used again to, to characterize these two Kings. And so what, what I see happening in, in Genesis three, Genesis three either is drawing on the same idea or is, you know, I think in some ways it is a source, not the source, but a source for, for what Isaiah and Ezekiel 28 are doing. And you, you could, you could hold that view regardless of when you think Genesis three was written, whether it's early or late. But I think they're, they're all, they're all sort of tracking on the same thing. In, in the Genesis three incident, the, the divine being, you know, comes as a serpent. All right. I don't think this is at all about zoology. 
Genesis right. 3 does not exist to give us a zoology lesson. An ancient reader, when he's reading, you know, something and, and one of the animals talk, all of a sudden he knows, okay, you know, animals don't talk, so the gods are up to something here. What, what's really going on? I mean, they, they can tell. They're, they're used to this. And, and, and so, you know, we, we have this imagery of this divine being as a serpent for particular reasons. It communicates certain things about you know, his nature and his character. We don't need to drift out into that. But you have an entity who has decided at some point prior to tempting the humans that I want to basically be in charge of and just tweak the parameters of this relationship of what's going on in this place called Eden. And you know, ultimately, he wants the elimination of humans because they're lesser. You know, Psalm 8, they're, they're, they're lower than the Elohim. So this is the you know what, what's going on in Eden. You have a member of the council. Ezekiel refers to this entity as, as a guardian cherub, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, so on and so forth. Now, a lot of scholars, you know, will, will resist this. And they will point to, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, you know, because it doesn't really translate well to a podcast, but... They will, they will resist this because the traditional Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, <clears throat> it has some not difficult. Well, I, I guess you could call them difficulties, but they're difficulties because there's some uh, there's some atypical grammar. It's not it's not non-Hebraic. There, we don't have textual errors here. It's just there's some archaic forms. You know, think just things like that. History Hebrew has a history of you know in its language, just like any other language. There's nothing wrong with the Masoretic text. It can be read very straightforwardly, uh, just like most of our English translation ha- translations have. But there are other scholars who want to go with the Septuagint, which distinguishes between it. Make it puts two characters in Ezekiel 28 instead of one. You know, the Septuagint will have you were with the guardian cherub. Okay, and so for many scholars, since they, they prefer the Septuagint here, will will say, no, that the villain, the villain in the backdrop here, you know, isn't the, the cherub, it's Adam. You know, and so Adam is the point of the characterization. Adam becomes the point of the gems, you know, the, the, and they, they'll try to associate that with the priesthood, even though all the gems aren't accounted for with that view, but they are accounted for if you just take, you know, take a temple view, which is why I go that direction. I don't, I don't like mostly accounted for. I like accounted for. Right. Uh, so this is where you get this, this alternative view. And if you take that view that, that the anointed cherub in Ezekiel 28 is not the, the villain back in the backdrop, then scholars don't see any association at all with, between that chapter and Genesis 3. Yeah, so uh, there there are a number of problems with this, and I you know I get into them in the demons book in a little more detail. I do do it in unseen realm, but you know my view is that the Masoretic text is fine. There's no reason to depart from it. The backdrop here is a supernatural rebel in the divine council. That's what we see going on in Genesis three. That is the backdrop that is presumed for both Isaiah fourteen and Ezekiel twenty eight, and this is why they share so much vocabulary. And they do. I have this laid out in my books. They share lots of vocabulary. And a lot of that vocabulary is associated with the divine counsel in many other passages. I don't think that's a coincidence. I, th- I think that's that's what we have here. 
So just a question of, of clarification. I've heard some say when, when talking about the Garden of Eden, uh, you, you said it's not about zoology, where it says the serpent was the craftiest beast of the field. Um, again, I, I, I wouldn't place these guys on the same kind of collegiate level as I place you. So that's why I'm, I'm tossing the question in your, your direction. And they, they suggest that the Ezekiel narrative says that that uh, uh, Eden was on a mountain. Um, again, not pointing to direct correlation, but that the reader would hear, ah, the serpent of the field, this flat plain doesn't belong in Eden, this place of the mountain. Is it, is it, is it, is the author in fact trying to communicate that, that this, that this uh, being doesn't geographically belong in the garden uh, by Uh, saying beast of the field? If if you're only thinking of literal geography, that's where your mind would go. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my, my first question would be, well, is Eden a garden or a mountain? Yes. You know, Really? You know, is it a garden yeah. or a mountain? And if you deny one of them, why? Because one says one verse says one thing, the other says the other, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that alone should tell you that we're not just dealing with simple geography either. Gotcha. Okay. You know, we, okay. we are using the language of place because, like, what else are we going to do? We're embodied beings, you know? <laughs> you know right, we, right. I actually did this in my class. I, I, I made people take out a half sheet of paper and I said, okay, what I want you to do is draw a place that has no latitude, longitude, height, depth, or width begin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was the whole, the whole thing was depressed the point. Like, like, what do I do now? Uh, and, and that's what we have here. We, we, we don't just have, you know, simple geography. I think the point of, of the curse there is, is since we do have, uh, again, a, a theologic, you have, you have theology and metaphor going on here. The, the, the being who wanted to be the most high is now going to be put beneath, you know, even mm. even the creaturely creation. Crawling on its belly, sure. Right. Yeah. And, and ultimately, ultimately, you know, the, the Eretz, the, the, the earth, I think there's a double entendre there because that word can be used of Sheol, the underworld. So not only mm-hmm. are we content to have you beneath the hooves, so to speak, if we're using, you know, our literal language here of the beasts of the field, but you're going to be way down there. Okay. You're going to be, you're going to be under the earth. Okay. Which is why, you know, the, this, this figure and in Isaiah 14, it's very clear. This figure is associated with the realm of the dead. Uh, you know, there, again, there are reasons why the characterizations are what they are, you know, and, and of course that fits with Eden because Eden, one of the, one of the, pardon the pun, one of the, the points of fallout, we know with the fall is we're going to die. The loss of immortality. Everyone now is going to go to the realm of the dead, where this entity, this this being has been consigned. You know, so so since you followed him in your rebellion, he in effect owns you. You're going to go to the same place. And and this is again where where we get, you know, Sheol and Lord of the Dead, you know, kind of thinking and, and that's, you know, extrapolated in other passages. And, you know, all these threads tend to converge, you know, later on in Second Temple literature and, of course, the New Testament with, you know, with Satan. You know, and, and of course, you know, the, the, the serpent in Genesis 3 is never called, you know, Satan. He's never called Satan. Uh, you know, we, we don't get that in Isaiah 14. We don't get it in Ezekiel 28. You know, there, there's a whole issue that I talk about in, in Unseen Realm related to this, that, that critical scholars love this because they, they, they like to pit the Old Testament against the New, like the New Testament writers are just making stuff up. They were bored. And, you know, <laughs> I, I'm done reading my Old Testament. You know, let's make up something new here. 
you know, I got it. Let's invent a villain called Satan. Oh, that sounds cool. That'd be a great movie. <laughs> you know, no, this is, this is, it's misguided thinking. What you have is you have a rebel in Genesis 3. The term Satan is not used of that rebel in the Hebrew Bible because where Satan is used, it, it's used of either an opposer or a challenger, both in a good or, or possibly bad sense. But as time goes on in the Second Temple period, it, it takes on a more, more, more of the negative characteristic of someone who's adversarial. And so at some point, some writer in the Second Temple period thought, you know, you know that, that's what that serpent was doing back there in Eden. He was opposing God. He didn't like what God wanted to do. Let, let's, let's use this word to describe him. And then you know, our readers will understand that, you know, that it'll make the point even more that this was an adversary. You know, this, this guy wasn't doing what God wanted to do, so let's call him Satan. And they call him lots of other things that don't appear in the Hebrew Bible as well. Look, if the shoe fits, make him wear it. Okay, that, that's what you've got. Yeah. That, that's all you've got. The theology is not based on a on vocabulary. The, the theology is not based on a term or when you use the term. What what chronological point did we use the term? That's where the theology is born. No. The theology is what it is. You can use lots of vocabulary and you don't – where's the cosmic rule that says I have to use the same set of vocabulary to convey the theology? You know, where is that? Is that like in the rule book at the end of the Bible? You know, thou shalt only use certain vocabulary words to convey certain theological point. No, it's ridiculous. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay? So it doesn't matter that Satan doesn't get used of this villain in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3. Okay? It's a way to describe him later. He still does what he does. He's still an enemy. He's still got in the way. So... What's the problem? You know, but uh, again, this is one of these artificial village atheist problems that you get on, on the internet. But unfortunately, there, there are scholars, I think, that, that whether they mean to or not, sort of feed into it and, and try to come across like there's some opposition going on, some theological stuff in the New Testament that isn't there. Here, you, you, when, the, when the demons book comes out, your audience will, will know, I'll use this sentence in the book or something like it. It's like, look, when it comes to this notion that the New Testament has a different demonology or a different Satanology than the Old Testament does, I reject that. Okay. What I would say is that all of the data points for New Testament demonology and New Testament Satanology are in the Old Testament. They're just not assembled there. But all the data points are there. So all you have people doing in the Second Temple period in the New Testament is they're, you know, drum roll please, they're looking at their Hebrew Bible and thinking, oh, I wonder, you know, how do the data points, how do we understand the data points? Like, let, you know, what can we do to sort of, you know, fit this all together? How do we how do we take the data of our sacred text and understand it? You know, Lord help us to put this together. That mm -hmm. that's all they're doing. That's that, all that's they're awesome. doing. You know, they're 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 not just making stuff up. Uh, Doctor Heiser, uh, I wonder if you could maybe that's a bit of talking a hobby about of mine. I think you can <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, as we talk about Satan, this serpent, um, I wonder if you could maybe sort of 
give your uh give your best sort of biography of satan you know we've i just read the passage in ezekiel 28 about you know from the day you were created you were blameless until unrighteousness was found in you by the time we get to genesis 3 we already see that he's crafty he's up to no good by then uh i mean so just dating back in history what's our best understanding does this connect in some way to the sort of primordial chaos of the earth before God began, uh, his this work in like, creation. This and, is like and one then of those kind bios. Of, Go ahead. What's that? I was going to say, this is like one of those bios where like the childhood is covered in two paragraphs. And then they yeah, move on. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Right. Yep. And, <laughs> yeah. Give us a biography of Satan. Go. <laughs> that's, that's a really good analogy, Luke 252. You want to know yeah. what happened in those missing 18 years? <laughs> or like that, that really dramatic moment where like Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household and then one day he like kills a dude and hides his body. Like that's one <laughs> verse. Like he just he saw a dude beaten uh beaten in uh, an Israelite, he kills him, hides his body, the end. And it's like, whoa, whoa, that's a crazy <laughs> character arc and like that's, one that's verse. All you need to know up to this point. <laughs> yeah. Right. What but, happened to but Moses? He's, <laughs> but he's part of this divine council. And at yeah. some point goes rogue. Yeah. And every, then... member, every member of the heavenly host, you know, the spiritual world, you know, has has a – this is another dispute that scholars have. Well, we could only refer to the really important spiritual guys as being the council. Well, why? You know, it's kind of like Congress. If I say Congress was in session, well, I certainly mean the senators, you know, the the, the represent the elected people. Okay, I certainly mean them. But do I mean to say all their staff had off? They didn't show up. No, of course not. You know, Congress is is more of a collective than that. So I, I think any member of the heavenly host has some role to play you know, in in this council relationship. They may not be decision makers, but they're they're there. They're part of of the structure. They're part of the of the hierarchy, the picture, the bureaucracy is probably a better way to say it. So you had one of these beings, you know, a cherub is again a term drawn from the the Akkadian Babylonian world for a throne guardian. And like was God scared? Did he need protection? You know, was it Chuck Norris? You know, the spiritual Chuck <laughs> Norris. Or, you know. No, it, it it just refers to to guarding sacred space to protect it from defilement. Okay, that's all it is. You know, so we have, you know, for our our purposes, the, the important thing to observe though is that that person, that figure, has close proximity, has close proximity to the presence of God. So we know that. We know, you know, we know he's part of the, the bureaucracy. He has close proximity to God. We know because of the imaging language and the plurals that, you know, he, he has one of the, the attributes that God shares with, his, with the beings who are like him, which are us and them, is freedom. Okay. So he's, he's got the ability to, to, to choose. And he chooses poorly, uh, you know, autonomy and so on and so forth. So we know that. When he, whenever he crossed that line was before the fall because he has to decide to, upon this strategy, you know, to, to get humans in trouble. But that's about really all we know. We know he's a created being. Okay, there is only one creator in biblical thought. Um, <clears throat> you know, so we don't really know a whole lot, you know, beyond that. Sure. Uh, 
you know, so maybe, that, that's a real short, it might be, maybe we get two good. verses out of that instead of one, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and, and that's great, you know, maybe we, we'll, we'll trans- transition back into garden narrative and maybe talk about some Revelation stuff, some Genesis stuff. We talk about the gar- uh, the, the, the tree of life. I, I was watching a, a podcast uh, by some of your buddies at the Bible Project, and they were talking about how they, they viewed the tree of life as something that was going to be continually partaken of. And I don't want to make, I might be misrepresenting them, but but I think uh, if I heard them correctly, they were saying that the tree of life was something that Adam and Eve would have eaten from regularly. Uh, and when they sinned, it's as if they, by abiding into the tree, as regularly partaking of this life, they were continuing in everlasting life. But by being separated mm-hmm. from that tree, uh, it's like as if their immortality was conditional on partaking of that tree regularly. Mm-hmm. It, does that seem to make sense to you? Yeah, that, that actually, I, I don't know if, you know, I'm certainly not going to take credit for for this because, again, I didn't – the dirty little secret of Unseen Realm is Mike never had an original thought. Um, so I, I do view Adam and Eve as having contingent immortality. And and I may have talked with that – talked with Tim and John about that, but they may have, you know, that may have been their view from the very beginning. I don't know. But this sounds like a lot like, like my view. Let, let's play with this a little bit because here's an example – where, okay, how would we read this literally versus metaphorically, and why are those not in conflict? Okay? So the, a literalistic approach assumes there is an Adam and Eve, there is a garden, there is a tree. And so as long as they, they keep eating from this tree, they are going to stay alive, providing that, you know, providing for two things. One, they don't sin, and two, they don't do anything really stupid. Okay, they're 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 mortals. So if if Adam gets a little too close to the to two elephants frolicking in the field and one of them steps on him, okay, you know he's going to die. He's going to get crushed. <laughs> he's not going to just stand up and say, "Well, knock that off." You know that wasn't very not. You know, okay, he's he's dead. <laughs> okay, he's yeah. Wait, give me some fruit. Quick, go grab a fruit. Right, yeah. Throw it, <laughs> it's like my, some kind of X Men movie where he like starts throwing back elixir. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, like if he cuts himself too deeply, he's gonna bleed. Okay, they're they're humans. That's what they are. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, they can't do anything stupid, and they can't sin. So as long as they're as they're doing that. And they eat from the tree. They're gonna they're gonna live, you know, keep living. Okay, you know, you, you could throw the the literalness away and and communicate the same point. As long as they are in the dwelling place of God, the house of God, the presence of God, where there is life and not death, they're going to live forever. The only thing that's going to prevent that is if they're expelled. Now they're not at the source of life anymore. You know the, the the metaphor and the and the literalness. I mean, it, it, they they work hand in hand. So again, this is this is my view that that Adam and Eve had contingent immortality. It was contingent on those two things, and like you could throw in a mm. third, just just God's pleasure. Okay, you could throw that one in. But you know, once they're divorced from that, they have to be blocked either way. Again, in either metaphorical or literal view. They cannot continue to eat from the tree of life because then the curse, the, the, the judgment, you shall surely die, is thwarted. They won't die. Right. So they must be kept away from the source of life. Now they're estranged from God. They're, they're going to die. You know, this, this is their inevitable end. You, you will surely die. 
you know, and, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, if we, if we look at that, we, we really get the message loud and clear as to what, what the cost of this is. You know, we can just different ways of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So, so there are two like, uh, like seemingly obvious questions for me that follow up behind that. Um, because we've done some episodes on hell recently with people who were conditionalist, uh, where they, they would say the, the immortality of man is conditional upon receiving eternal life from Christ. So, so I know that's kind of putting you on the spot. It's not really a Garden of Eden question. Uh, but, but maybe if you want to maybe dodge that question and answer another one, I have another yeah. one backed up for you. Uh, no, go what, ahead, what are your man. thoughts on unconditionalism and hell? And uh, if you if you're not naturally immortal, uh, if you if, if if the soul is not immortal, uh, does it need Christ to for the soul to be immortal? Is hell eternal well, conscious I, torment, let, or do you let, cease let, to be? Let's just take let's just take the you know on the positive side. Obviously, this is this is easy because you can take concepts like being in Christ. And of course, Christ is eternal. You know, this identification of us with Christ and being made like him and in his, you know, all these things sort of work together. They're, it's a matrix of ideas. You know, and, and joined to him, joined to his resurrection. The, the eternal life is really easy to see on the, on the positive side. I, I, would, I would say, yes, on the negative side, those are legitimate questions. They're legitimate issues. For me, both the traditional view of hell, that it's eternal torment, Mm-hmm. and annihilation. Both of those are on the table for me. And it, and it depends on, really for me, one question. When, in, in the book of Revelation, when, when we read something like, uh, again, I don't know if I'll get this exact, but that the last enemy to be destroyed, this is either 1 Corinthians 15 or Revelation, you know, at the end of Revelation, maybe both, but the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Mm-hmm. Okay. If that means in real time what it says, then death is destroyed. If that is true, then how can you have death continue? I thought it was destroyed. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, now now the result of that is still eternal separation from God because death is destroyed and you're not, again, with you're not in Christ. And so by definition, yes, you'd be annihilated and that's forever. You know, but if if we're if that's supposed to be taken as poetic language, it doesn't really mean that death is going to actually be destroyed. It it just means that you know it's going to be, you know, it's a it's a way of sort of negativizing to the nth degree God's attitude toward the place of judgment. Okay, you know, this is poetic language, and that if you take it that way, that allows death to be ongoing. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't really know. I, I don't. I don't feel a high degree of certainty about either. But you know, to to me, annihilation could make good sense. But I, I don't know that it's right. You know that that that's fair. That's, that's what I'm saying. Why did God allow the Satan to live in the Garden of Eden, even if it was in rebellion against Him? Yeah. He could have said, "Get out. Get don't out be in here. the garden." Yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. So there's multiple puzzles. Um, at work in the the snake. One thing to clarify: the snake is not called the Satan in that story. Right. Um, that's a title that's going to come to be associated with this arch rebel, spiritual rebel later on in the Hebrew Bible. Um, so we'll just call it the snake. Okay. Um, so there's you know two options. One is that the snake uh, had uh, its own rebellion, and that that story is not narrated in Genesis. 
but it's presumed, and then you get the backstory later on in the in the Bible. Um, another possibility is that Genesis three is telling you the rebellion story of the snake and the human simultaneously. Mm, that is his rebellion. That it's the fall of the snake yeah. <laughs> and the fall of uh, Adam and Eve in the same story. Um, and I actually think that's mm. uh, there's uh, some textual details that point in that direction. For example, the snake is um, introduced as the beast of the field and it's arum in Hebrew. Crafty. Well, it gets translated crafty, but if you do a word search on arum in the Hebrew Bible, it's like under 10 other occurrences. And it's always a positive trait of being um, smart and sh shrewd mm. is sometimes perceptive. Yeah. It's it, not far from the word for wisdom. C correct. In other words, it's used a lot in the book of Proverbs, and it's a positive straight trait to be Arum. Yeah. Um, so the snake is introduced in the first sentence with a positive wisdom trait. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a perceptive, clever creature. Mm. Um, and what's interesting, that uh, he said, Arum mikol habehemot, um, uh, crafty more than all the beasts of the field. Mm-hmm. What he ends up is being arur mikola beimot, cursed more than all the beasts in the mm, field. No so play. within the course of the narrative, he goes from being arum to arur mm. more than all the beasts. And I think that's a, oh. the literary design. It's his breaking bad. Yes. Yeah, totally. He's yeah. a good creature gone bad. Yeah. Um, so this presumes what is the creature. Um, in the video, we draw a whole bunch of design patterns from all over the Hebrew Bible that point in the direction of that snake being a, a spiritual being in disguise, namely one of the cherubim slash seraphim. Yeah, so if the garden was a place where all of God's creatures lived, yeah, yeah. Where, where the humans were meant to rule, correct? Um, then it wouldn't be strange to have mm. one of the cleverest yeah. creatures there. <laughs> all the creatures are there. Yeah, yeah, the cherubim are there. We, Cher we yeah. meet them at the end mm -hmm. of chapter three. We know their garden. So Adam and Eve are hanging out. With, with creatures, with with heavenly creatures that surround the divine throne, and earthly creatures, and earthly creatures. That's the picture you get: heavenly creatures, earthly creatures, overlapping God space, our space together. That's the garden. So, yeah. so from that perspective, God isn't like I know this guy's trouble, but I'm gonna let him in. Yeah, it's like yeah. no, he's just part of God's good creation. Yeah. And, and, and so this is key because um, sometimes the the Satan figure. Um, is talked about as if he is essential evil and has always been so. Uh, okay. So the story portrays him as a fallen creature, just like the humans are going to be fallen creatures. Yeah. He's a rebel, mm. um, just like um, human beings are rebels. And so why did God allow the snake in the garden? Well, why did God allow humans in the garden? Because <laughs> right. he wants to partner with mm. other creatures yeah. to rule heaven and earth together. And we're given a story of a twin rebellion mm. of a spiritual being and a, a human, a human being. Okay, another question yeah. that came up from this video yeah. was that we showed the serpent yeah. connected to a, a character in the Bible, characters in the Bible yeah. called Seraphim. They're in the book of Isaiah. They're in the book of Isaiah. Yes. The only time they appear called that. Correct. And what they seem to be yeah. are the, what we uh, elsewhere in scripture would know of as the cherubim. Correct. These creatures yeah. 
animal-like wings yeah. flying around, protecting God's throne, worshiping yeah. God. Yeah. Isaiah has this vision. He calls yeah. them seraphim. Yep. And you pointed out that yeah. seraphim yeah. means snake. It's the Hebrew word for snake. It's the Hebrew word for snake. Correct. Now, right. many people have checked into that and said, well, when I look up the word seraphim, yeah, snake is a possible translation, yeah. but also just the idea of the burning ones yeah. is a translation. Yeah. So are we pushing it too far? Can it just actually mean a burning one and not necessarily a snake? Yeah. And are we are we trying to too neatly tie this idea of the serpent in the garden yep. to a angelic, not angelic, a spiritual being in God's Yeah. Family? So a lot of this is due to confusion about how the Hebrew language works. Okay. How um so maybe just facts on the ground. Um, so the Hebrew word seraphim, mm-hmm. it's a Hebrew plural noun. The im is a plural. Hmm. So the noun is just uh, sadaf. Okay. Sadaf. So the noun sadaf um, appears eight times in the Hebrew Bible. And um, never once does it refer to a, uh, a burning creature <laughs> or a creature on fire. Hmm. Um, it means snake. Every single one of those times. In the Hebrew scriptures. In the Hebrew Bible. Every time. Yes. It means snake. Um, if you look up the word in the standard Hebrew, Aramaic uh, lexicon of the Old Testament, or uh, in the f- classic Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon, these are, lex- these are dictionaries of ancient biblical Hebrew. Uh, you just look up the word saraf, and the first meaning is snake. And then they give you, the, there's only eight examples in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's in Numbers 21, the saraf that mm. bite the Israelites, and then he makes a uh, a bronze saraf, Moses does, to go on a staff. Uh, Moses talks about the seraphim that um, bit the Israelites in the wilderness, mm. that same story. Um, in the book of Isaiah, he mentions uh, the these seraphim three times. One of them is in that vision Isaiah sees. And then in two other times, in Isaiah 14 and Isaiah 30, he talks about a flying seraph, a seraph with wings mm. that flies. And uh, he it's in poetry, and he's describing a flying snake. He mm. just says it straight it's up. very clear. A, a flying snake, yeah. So the flying snakes occur three times in the book of Isaiah. Mm. But for some reason, our modern translations translate it snake in Isaiah chapters 14 and 30, but they just don't translate it in Isaiah 6. As they, snake. They just spell it with English letters, seraphim. But it, it is the standard Hebrew word for snake. Where does this idea of the burning ones yes. come up? Why is that in some so, dictionaries? So the Hebrew words are built off of a, th- uh, a three-letter root. Okay. Um, the three-letter root, uh, sin, resh, pe, saraf, um, appears in a verb, in, um, saraf, and, and the verb uh, means to set on fire, hmm. to burn. Um, there also is a noun um, built off of that root, serifa, that means uh, like burning. Mm. Um, a burnt thing. A burnt thing. That's right. So, but the way Hebrew nouns work is they'll derive, they'll build different words off of a three letter root. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the reason why these snakes are called seraphim uh, is because they bite and they're, they're poisonous. And I've never gotten a snake bite before. Have you <laughs> ever been? You've never, you've yeah. hunted rattlesnakes. Yeah. I never have. Yeah, I've never been bit yeah. though. But, uh, uh, you know, it's the sensation of burning, apparently. Sure. When you get bit. <laughs> yeah. So a burning snake I, makes perfect sense. It's a venomous snake. S- yeah. Right. Yeah. So those are those ideas are connected. Correct. Yeah. So seraph yeah. means snake. Yep. 
But as a verb, yep, it, it means mean ver- to, burning. To burn. Yeah. To burn. Correct. And then you yeah. said there's a time where it's also used as a noun to mean. There's a different noun that's it's not different... seraphim. Oh, it's not seraphim. Serifa that can refer to uh, burning as a noun. Okay. But, but a, that still begs the question then, why yeah. is it that you open a dictionary and seraphim, yeah. sometimes it says the burning ones. Is that just yeah. tradition? Uh, there's no dictionary of biblical Hebrew that I know of that has burning one as a meaning oh, for isn't. the entry of seraphim. No, oh, okay. I, you no. look it up in a Hebrew dictionary and it's going to say snake. Yeah, correct. Okay. Uh, some people use an older tool um, from the 19th century called Strong's Concordance. Mm. Um, and I did look that up and actually here real quick. Uh, Strong's and uh, the first meaning they give is burning, and then they say figuratively of a poisonous serpent. Mm. So even though they say burning at first, they immediately qualify to talk yeah. figuratively about burning serpent. So I'm not sure where this idea of the seraphim as burning ones came from, but it's not based on uh, any of the evidence in biblical Hebrew. Mm. So it means snake. Um, so what Isaiah saw. What Isaiah saw are flying snakes. Are flying snakes. Yeah. Which wouldn't have been an uncommon symbol for him to see. No, it's actually a very common symbol. Um, Ancient Egypt depicted flying snakes as an icon of creatures surrounding their gods. Mm -hmm. And actually we have, um, uh, I included this in the study notes that you can download for this video on our website. But um, there have been found ancient Israelite um, clay seals with the names of kings on them and stuff. And they show snakes with wings. Mm. There's a snake uh, with two wings and a snake with four wings. Mm. So this was an Israelite icon to talk about the cherubim that surround the divine throne. And, you know, they look like cows. They look like lions. They look like sure. eagles. They look like snakes. Yeah, uh, They are always multiform in, in how they appear. So anyway, that's kind of nerdy Hebrew language. Yeah. Ancient culture That's a big stuff, ca- category shift for... The flying snake. For me and for yeah, a lot of people. Correct. So just, it kind of yeah. takes a moment to go, really? Yes, that's right. <laughs> so what's important in the book of Isaiah especially is that um, when he uses the noun, seraph, uh, one of those other times in Isaiah 14, he's talking actually about the ruler of Babylon, hmm. who earlier in the same chapter was described as the one who tried to ascend to God's throne and mm. make his throne above God's throne. Yeah. Um, so this is a connected image. Yeah, so Isaiah 14 is actually tracking and linking into the Genesis 3 story and trying to help us see that that snake was uh, a heavenly being that disguised itself to deceive the humans mm-hmm. and uh, was actually trying to make a power grab yeah. and trying to get the humans to do the same. Mm-hmm. So Isaiah 14, is it's intentional that the word snake appears there in connection with the ruler Babylon modeled yeah. after the Genesis 3 story. Yeah. The, um, one of our main points in the video, yeah, is that this arch spiritual rebel is never given a proper name, but rather is given titles or images. Yeah. So s- snake uh, is one, uh, cherub in Ezekiel, seraph um, in Isaiah, but then lots of other images. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 27, he, he's associated with the sea dragon that was uh, a common concept in the ancient ancient world. Um, in Psalm 94, um, uh, this snake figure is associated with scorpions, a, mm. desert, a dark desert creature. Mm. So there's a variety of titles, a uh, variety of images. Another title in the New Testament is the devil. Mm. 
which is just the Greek word for the slanderer. This is actually fascinating. The devil is the Greek word diabolos. And um, Paul uses the word diabolos to describe men and women who spread gossip in a local church. Mm. So the devil isn't the only devil. Humans mm. can play that role too. Yeah. So it's a title. It's a title. It's a way to describe someone. So, um, however, uh, and we'll talk about this Satan, I think, in another question. But Lucifer has come to be a pretty popular in the name. popular name. Yeah. So here's what's fascinating about Lucifer. Lucifer is, is does, occurs nowhere in the Hebrew or Greek Bible. Okay, it's not P- in the Bible. Period. Um, As a name, correct? Yeah. In Isaiah chapter 14, we're back to Isaiah 14. Um, Isaiah uh, describes the ruler of Babylon, mm-hmm. um, which I think is meant to refer both to the human and spiritual ruler behind the icon of Babylon. The actual king of Babylon, yeah. but then also the like, Correct. the dominion he's under by Correct. some spiritual the evil. spiritual power um, behind Babylon. So Isaiah goes into this poem to talk about how um, the ruler of Babylon was like the morning star. In Hebrew, he says, uh, it's the phrase, Helel ben Shachar, or the shining one, the sun of the dawn. Yeah. This is brilliant on Isaiah's part. Isaiah this is, this is, is Simon, Jupiter, right? Or, uh, Venus. Or Venus. Yeah. Yeah. So he's tapping into, uh, yeah, astronomical phenomenon. Yeah. Of the last star that hangs on. Yeah, the brightest star. From the sunrise. Yeah. So the one that hangs on the longest as the sun rises. So, um, that, so that's, we call it Venus today. It's yeah. had lots of names, that planet has. Um, but it's developed a lot of stories and mythologies in many cultures mm-hmm. about the star that hangs on to like in rebellion yeah. <laughs> against the sun. Like I can outlast The last you. stand. Yeah, totally the last yeah. stand. In Canaanite mythology, uh, that figure is called Helel ben Shachar, the son of the dawn, mm. the shining one. Um, so what Isaiah is doing is he's actually tapping into a well-known story in Canaanite culture. Mm. and he's um, But he's also adapting it in light of the Genesis 3 story of the arch rebel who wants to ascend mm. to God's throne and rule in God's place, yeah. uh, not under God's authority, but as a God. So that's Isaiah 14. Um, in about the third, uh, somewhere in the second to third centuries AD, okay, we're fast forwarding in time, okay. like a long time, a thousand years. So after Jesus, 200-ish or 300 years, um, the um, Hebrew Bible and Greek Bible are being translated into Latin. Yeah. So Latin was um, were the main languages spoken mm-hmm. in the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And so um, when Latin translators, um, one of the most famous of which was a guy named Jerome, was translating Isaiah 14, he mm-hmm. translated uh, that phrase, Helel ben Shachar, with the Latin word Luciferos, mm. which means v- Venus, the, the morning star. Ah, okay. Yeah. So that's what yeah, that word. That's right. So, and then right. in later uh, church history, as Isaiah fourteen got associated with Satan, that Latin word somehow became a proper name. Got it. Um, so anyway, so it's it's not even a Greek or Hebrew word. It's a m- much later Latin translation. I've heard that story before about Satan was an angel who fell like a star, mm. and. That's where it comes from. Isaiah 14 is Isaiah the biblical 14. text yeah. where that begins. Now, technically, yeah. a seraphim isn't an angel. Um, oh, yeah, God. Right? It's a spiritual being. A spiritual being. Yeah, but that's uh, around God's heavenly throne, which the stars are images of yeah. those beings. Yeah. That's right. Right, the stars 
were yeah. when the ancients looked up at the yep. sky yeah. and they saw the stars. They, they thought of them as heavenly beings. Yeah, they used the biblical creatures. phrase, the host of heaven. The host of heaven. Which um, is used to describe... God's um, the, yeah. crew. God's heavenly crew. God's heavenly crew. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And we yeah. talked about that a lot. That's right. Yeah, the host of heaven are what surrounds the angel that announces the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. Mm. Yeah. And they're, pra- yeah, they're praising God and so on. Um, so there you go. Uh, Lucifer is not the name uh, of this figure. We, we talked about this, the spiritual being mm-hmm. in rebellion. Mm-hmm. Lucifer, we just talked about where that name came from. Mm-hmm. But there's other names. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most common name is Satan. Yeah, one, one of the most common. What were you thinking? Oh, in popular common? culture. In popular mean. culture. Oh, I see. Sure. Yeah, not, yeah in the, sure. not in the scriptures. Yeah, people don't use the word the, the devil as much as Satan. If I were to talk about yeah. this character. Yeah, sounds would, like a name. Satan. Sounds yeah. like a name. Yeah. And you've made the point that it's not a name. Yeah. Satan means yeah. the opposer. Correct. The one who stands against. The adversary. The, the different English words that can get to yeah. the heart of it. But and yeah. so you yeah. kind of insist on putting that article, the, yeah. Yeah. in front of Satan yeah. to to help shake it out of being yeah. a proper name. Well, one is just, uh, it was a personal journey of discovery when I learned Greek and Hebrew. And uh, I noticed that every time that that word refers to the spiritual arch rebel, it has the word the in front of it in Old Testament Hebrew and in the Greek New Testament mm. every time. Yeah. So, um, and then second, the words uh, in a biblical Hebrew, that noun, the uh, Satan, refers to more figures than just the spiritual rebel. Yeah. It can refer to um, a king who rises up uh, to rebel against King Solomon. There's three Satans in First Kings chapter 11, <laughs> and there are other kings. Yeah. And the word the is not used. Oh, interesting. For those. It's just a Satan. A Satan. Uh, which it's just an adversary. An enemy. Um, Something with Balaam, right? Yes, totally. The angel of Yahweh, the angel angel of the Lord, is described as Appears, stands as a Satan against Balaam. So stands as one opposed. Yeah, and it doesn't have the word the in front of it. But when, uh, uh, in biblical narratives, when this spiritual rebel is described, it's described as the Satan. Mm. So it's using the title, the adversary, Mm. and attaching the word the in front yeah. of it. So I, to me, that's important because I think giving this, whatever this creature is, um, I think giving it a proper name assigns a bit too much honor and dignity <laughs> to it. Because the whole point is this being is anti-creation. Mm-hmm. He's anti-good. Yeah. And the biblical authors don't ever assign it a name. Mm. They assign this creature images and titles. Mm. So I'm just trying to, to be honest, I'm just trying to imitate the biblical language about this creature. Yeah. And I think um, using the word the, I don't know. So it's a, it's a quiet revolution <laughs> <laughs> to redefine our language about uh, the Satan. And because it's how Jesus himself and the apostles also use the word the. Why is it not in our modern translations? I think one, it sounds awkward. Yeah, it sounds super awkward. And our translations are trying to make the Bible less awkward. Yeah. In terms of trying to make it into normal English. But then second, I think there's a longstanding assumption that it is a name. Hmm. And so translators don't want to, you know, upset the boat too much and p- put obstacles in the way of readers. And so yeah. they they take out, they just don't represent the word the in hmm. English, which I, I think is unfortunate. I think we miss out on some 
important things that were. What I think I like about also pulling back and allowing that not be the name is then it also helps with how we describe this creature as a, a portrait of many things. A mosaic. A mosaic. A collage of terrible things. Yeah, because yeah. while the the Bible does describe this mm. as a creature, mm. to imagine it as a creature that we mm. can understand or have categories for, yeah, yeah. like yeah. I'm a creature or yeah. like a yeah. animal in the zoo is a creature, yeah. it's, it's going to be different. Yeah. In the same way that I can't fully appreciate what a... A cherubim or a seraphim is. Yeah, that's what, right. What is that's it for yeah. for something in such a state of rebellion that it's anti everything? Yeah, and likes to bring everything into destruction and chaos. What kind of creature is that? Yeah, and um, yeah, by allowing us to step back and not giving it such a concrete yeah name helps mm-hmm. that mystery stay a bit alive. In fact, um, in the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. Um, John, the, the visionary, I, he's, he understands this. Yeah. And so he uses a variety of titles and a variety of images. But in one passage, he brings them all together. Mm. In the Revelation chapter 12, mm. he says, Woe to the earth and sea because the diabolos, the devil, the, the devil um, has come down to you with great wrath. Um, and then he goes on to describe uh, a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he calls it an, a snake. Mm. Um, all all in one. And then uh, earlier in that chapter, he calls it the great dragon, the snake, the diabolos, and the satan, mm. all in one. Yeah. So he he looks at the whole biblical collage and then brings it together. It was actually this passage that inspired mm. the visual that we came, that released the idea to make the Satan a collage in yeah. the video. It's about demon sex. Oh, boy. Um, so <laughs> what yes. we say in the video is one of the mm-hmm. yeah. one of the strangest stories in the Bible is totally. in Genesis 6. Yes, it is. First few verses Strange there. to us. Strange to Strange us. Strange to modern Westerners. Yes. Yes. And it's the story. And if you've watched um, the Noah's Ark one done by... Uh, yeah, directed by Aronofsky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They really play into this whole world of... Correct. Uh, that yeah. it says the sons of God... Yeah came and had yeah. sex with human ladies yeah. and gave birth to the Nephilim. Yeah. And this story is, for a modern person, is so strange for yeah. many reasons. Now, what we do in the video is we explain, look, in the ancient world, mm-hmm. these civilizations, these powerful civilizations, many of them had in their mythology yeah that they were founded by half God, half man, kind of warrior kings. That are giant. Giant, and they're big. Yep, yep. And and in fact, you can start to trace that theme and see that they are all over the biblical narrative in in the Old Testament. Um, So we talk about that and how then this... This part of Genesis just smacks of this like political theology of just yeah. like, hey, those warrior kings yeah. that are, yeah. they're bad news. Yeah, they're not to be worshipped or honored. They're not awesome. They're like, yeah. they're demon possessed, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you want to take it literally, yeah. they are the spawn of yeah. fallen yeah. spiritual beings. Yeah. You take it figuratively and they are just, they're possessed <laughs> yeah, yeah, by it. Yeah, right. Um, now the, let's talk about it literally for a second. <laughs> okay. How, okay. how do demons have 
sex with women. I yeah. mean, they're completely different yeah, type totally. of yeah. of being. Yeah. Um, they don't. I would. Do they have sexual organs? The whole thing. Yeah. yeah like yeah, yeah. so. How does that work? How does that work? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, let's step back. Um, uh, the biblical storyline, the biblical view of the world, assumes that heaven and earth are distinct spheres, but that are meant to overlap and occasionally do. Yeah. Um, and so the spiritual beings, it's hard because our English word spiritual means now non-physical. Yeah. That's not true hmm. in the biblical view of the world. Um, spiritual beings take on physical form at many points of the biblical story. Okay. So let's just talk about the good ones. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know. Well, like um, the cherubim in the garden. Cherubim in the garden, yeah. It was, they yeah. were guarding the garden. They yeah. weren't just some like hologram there. Yeah, totally. They yeah, were the, yeah, actual they, beasts. They, yeah, they kill you, <laughs> right? Yeah, presumably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what if they're guards? If yeah. they're like bouncers, if they're going <laughs> yeah, to eat them, like the whole point is that they won't let you in. Um, so uh, think about other other good ones. When um, these three, what are called the three men, visit Abraham oh. in Genesis mm-hmm. chapter 18. Yeah. Um, we're told in Genesis 19 that two of them are angels. Yeah. Um, and they sat down and Abraham made them a meal and they ate together under a tree. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, in Genesis 19, when those two angels go to the city of Sodom and meet up with Lot, mm. they're quite physical. Mm. Um, Lot tells them to come in you know, to his house. And then the men of Sodom come and want to rape the angels. That's, yeah, another strange story. So, and actually, we we can talk about that more because the Sodom and Gomorrah story in Genesis 19 is designed as a perverted inversion of the sons of God and the women in Genesis 6. Mm. Um, Because it's humans and spiritual beings involving sex uh, in a a destructive way. Um, So, um, and it happens in the New Testament too. When angels appear, they take on mm. physical appearance and can do stuff. Yeah. So um, it's not the case that angels don't have bodies. I see. They have different kinds of bodies. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, mm. right? When he says, What mm. kind of what body is the resurrection body? Yeah. And he says, Well, listen, there's lots of different kinds of bodies. Mm. And he starts talking, you know, there's the stars and birds and creatures and humans. So. In the biblical imagination, spiritual beings have bodies. Mm. They are different kinds of bodies. Um, so they're not like ghosts in the way we think of no, spirits and no. ghouls and no. sprites. And no. Just... I, and listen, I'm not saying I find any of this easy yeah. to process. <laughs> I find this very difficult to process. Sure. But I'm just trying to be honest with what the biblical authors are saying and what yes. they mean. And in the, in the Bible, f- spiritual beings regularly appear in physical form. Yeah. Um, don't uh, and, and they appear... Like humans. They look like humans. They look like humans. Correct. So um, the sons of God in Genesis 6, um, uh, verses 1 and 2, the sons of God is the Old Testament phrase to talk about spiritual beings. Uh, It's parallel to the host of heaven, uh, to the phrase angels, and and so on. Um, So, you know, the plain sense reading of the phrase sons of God. um, Okay, that's one layer. Sorry. Well, sorry. My brain's going to do too many mm. things. The plain sense reading is spiritual beings uh, sexually abuse women. They yeah. take women. And then um, create the Nephilim. And, and, well, we'll talk about that in a second. Okay. So, one, another thing is that Genesis 6 is designed according to a design pattern to m- imitate Genesis 3. Mm. In Genesis 3, you have a woman 
Okay. And a spiritual being having a conversation. The woman sees that something is good and she takes it for herself. That's、mm-hmm. the vocabulary of Genesis 3, verse 6. Yeah. Genesis 6 comes along as an inversion. Now it's not a, a woman taking as she talks to a spiritual being, it's the spiritual beings see that women are good、mm. and they take for themselves.、Mm. So it's their. So、little mirrors to, of each other. Supposed to see that this, these、yes. are dual rebellions of yeah. sorts. Yeah, it's intensifying the, the nature and scope of the combined human and spiritual rebellion. If、mm. Genesis 3 is the first wave of spiritual human rebellion,、mm. Genesis 6 is the next wave. So, one thing I'm thinking about then is that in the Genesis, in these stories in Genesis 1 through 11, the rebellions are always a spi- have a spiritual component. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just something I don't generally yeah, that's、right. really dwell Actually, on. Actually, think it through. The three ways of rebellion are the garden, the snake, and the woman. Yeah. Genesis 6, which is the lead up to the flood story. Yeah. And that's right after you finish the story about Cain and Lamech building this city built on human bloodshed. Yeah. So you get, you get outside the garden, you get another human and spiritual rebellion.、Mm-hmm. And then you get to Babylon. Yeah. And what's foregrounded is the human rebellion, and you have to wait. To later in the narrative, till you see that that was also a spiritual rebellion. That Babylon well. itself ba- was. The building of also, Babylon. So, all three steps of Genesis 1 to 11, three,、uh, chapters 4 and 6, chapter 11, are combined human spiritual rebellions. Yeah.、Um, so, that's the broader context. Okay. So, it's not strange in the biblical story what's happening. It's tragic. Yeah. But it's, it's within the imagination.、Uh, another, the last confirmation. Is Jesus' brother,、um, Jude,、hmm. who wrote an、oh. epistle,、mm-hmm. the letter, short letter in the New Testament.、Uh, and he actually、uh, pairs these stories together the story of the sons of God and Sodom and Gomorrah, interestingly.、Hmm. He does.、Mm-hmm. He does. He sees them as parallel,、uh, design patterns with each other.、Hmm. He talks about、uh, angels who didn't keep their own domain,、hmm. but abandoned their proper abode. This Genesis 6.、Mm-hmm. He keeps in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment day.、Mm. So, and then he goes on that's just like Sodom and Gomorrah,、mm. where they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh,、mm. um, w- w- which is referring to humans wanting to rape angels. Yeah. So he sees Genesis 6 and 19 <laughs> as perverted inversions of each other. And notice in that story in Sodom, Lot, Lot、um, says, goes outside to talk with these terrible men. And then he says, Yeah, don't rape the guys.、Um, he says, Here, I have two wonderful daughters. Have yeah, them. Yeah. So you have, once again, think this, it's all based、so、on Genesis.、Weird. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's, it's terrible. Um, but it's the inversion. <laughs> Instead of the daughters of men being the object of the men of Sodom,、yeah. their desire, it's all inverted.、Mm. Um, but just like those beautiful women in Genesis 6, Lot wants to give his beautiful daughters. So,、um, I, again, I'm not saying this is easy to process, but this is how Jude read the story.、Um, this is how every ancient Jewish interpreter from the time period of Jesus interpreted these stories about spiritual beings having sex with women. In the、mm-hmm. Dead Sea Scrolls, and、yeah. this is normal. So, and I think it's supposed to be uncomfortable, right? It's crazy. Yeah, it's not like, oh, ancient people so primitive. 
Yeah. Like, and it's, that's, it's crazy. Yeah. But they also lived in a world where um, it was normal for the ancient empires around them to claim that they're claim that heritage. founders and kings. Yeah. So the most famous one of these is a guy named Gilgamesh, mm. um, who what, founded the city of ancient, like pre-Babylon, Babylon. Babylon. Mm-hmm. And actually the most famous statue of Gilgamesh, Google it. It's a picture of the giant, a giant guy holding a lion in his hand <laughs> and holding a snake in his other hand. Oh, wow. And uh, he's the founder of the city of Uruk. He's a giant. He's a giant. And he founds the city of Uruk, which in Genesis 10 is what the guy Nimrod founded, Uruk, he calls Erek and Babylon. Hmm. And so the biblical authors want us to think of these ancient warriors. They're speaking kings. into this whole That's right. tradition. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So uh, the Nephilim and so on, there actually is uh, some translation challenges with how you interpret Genesis 6 verse 4. Because it actually says the Nephilim were in the land in those days. Yeah. Um, and then what are those days? Those are the days when the sons of God did their thing and gave birth to the warrior giants. And so some people think that the Nephilim are different than the warriors. That they just happen to exist at the same time. There are other, it's, that's one possible way to translate the text. Another way to translate it is that it's trying to associate the Nephilim with the offspring of the sons of God. And, oh, and Oh, interesting. Um, okay. And, I mean, uniform, all of the earliest interpretations in Jesus' day, um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the book of First Enoch, in the book of Jubilees, the wisdom of Ben Sirah and Jesus' brother all read um, those stories as the, this screwed up merging of the sons of God and women produced the mutant warrior kings of old. So... It's it's actually the most plain sense reading, and it's the way most people took it in the early centuries. It was mm. only, I think, later, as um, Christian leaders got offended by the sheer craziness of how it sounds, that other interpretations started to develop. Well, I mean, so we got in the weeds, but I mean, the, yeah. but the, I think the, the takeaway is that yeah, yeah. It, as the Bible wrestles through yeah. spiritual evil, yeah. um, it, it, it believes that it exists and yeah. it's yeah. powerful and yeah. that it combines with the human rebellion. Yeah. It's never working independently of humans. It's always inter twined yeah. with human rebellion yeah yes that's and, how it manifests itself in the world yeah that's and right. that there was and there's this twin rebellion yeah. of satan the satan yeah. and the humans yeah. working together mm-hmm. and um that's something that at the bible project we've mm-hmm. been really mm-hmm. taking on board to use mm-hmm. your language mm-hmm. to not be just mm-hmm. complete modernists and be like well mm-hmm. the spiritual realm we can just yeah. Maybe ignore or just minimize. Minimize. Yeah. But the the yeah. Bible seems to think this is really really important. Let's wrestle yeah. through this. Yeah. Once we get into there, mm-hmm. man, it gets there's a lot. There's a so lot. we got into the weeds yeah. in order to dispel some yeah. ideas, yeah. reconstruct some new ideas. Yeah. But then the purpose is to take seriously that there are there mm-hmm. you can actually participate with Yeah with evil in yeah. a way that is yeah. is destructive. Yeah, the biblical story is giving us a really robust depiction of spiritual evil. 
and, and how it's fully intertwined with human rebellion and evil. Um, it's easy to reject a lot of this for modern readers because they associate it with, you know, Satanism or witchcraft or something with a pentagram on it. Um, and that's not what the biblical authors are trying to say. Um, the, the twin spiritual human rebellion of Babylon is a political economic system. Mm -hmm. It's a cultural system. Um, in the book of Revelation, Babylon is uh, talked about as being the merchant of the whole world, hmm. the economic engine of the whole world, including slavery. And that's what gets brought down, you know, hmm. when Babylon falls. And so the biblical authors want us to imagine that we're all inhabiting uh, uh, cultural systems that are participating in a human spiritual rebellion, but also on a personal level. Um, when I entertain, um, when I dehumanize someone else yeah. as my tribe superior to you, you're less human. You probably don't deserve to be here, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which no one, well, maybe some people say that out loud, but <laughs> none of us like to think that we think that way. Yeah, but we all do. But we all think that way yeah. a lot more at the time than we're willing to admit. And, uh, the biblical authors would say we are, yeah. we are participating in dragging the world back into death and yeah. chaos. The amount of death I will allow in the yeah. world around me and in others so that I can enjoy something. Correct. Yeah. If when yeah. I stop and really appraise that, yep. it's pretty yeah. startling. It, it is startling. And we all and disturbing. we all do that. That's right. So um and, and and this is when you read the gospels, this is what Jesus was constantly talking about. Yeah. This is why he didn't start a revolutionary war against Rome. Mm. Because he, Rome was captive to something great. Yeah, he went out to the desert for 40 days to conquer the real enemy mm. um, that was tempting him to take power, take the kingdom of God over the world, but through violent force. Yeah. And he resisted that, and he went about confronting a spiritual enemy that had, had captured a lot of people's bodies and minds and hearts. Uh, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane in the Gospel of Luke, and he's getting arrested, he said, he calls... He calls it, this is the time for the power of the dark. Hmm. That's what he says. Hmm. He allows the power of the darkness to overcome him. That's why we ended the video with Jesus allowing himself to be overtaken by evil. Because that is the way that he overcomes it. But we saved that for the last video. <laughs> That's a whole other yeah. topic. Yeah. Is how do you overcome yeah. evil? Yeah, totally. And Jesus, yeah. he overcame it through letting himself be overcome. Correct, yeah. And yeah. that's... Uh, yeah, it's huge. It's, it's actually not a minor issue in the biblical story. Spiritual evil is like a, a really important theme through the whole thing, yeah. which is why we tackled it. <laughs> I've been avoiding it for years, but I, uh, there you go. Now, again, I, when I say this, it, it's with respect to books that seminary students or lay people who, who really engage scripture would buy. There is no other book ever published on the powers of darkness that approaches the subject from the perspective of three rebellions. Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Babel, Genesis 11, Deuteronomy 32. That that, that becomes the, the guiding framework for how we not only talk about supernatural enemies of God in the Old Testament, but it frames how we talk about them between the Testaments and in the New Testament. That has never been done. Now, it's been done a lot in scholarship, 
I mean, I can, I can direct you to all kinds of journal articles and scholarly monographs, you know, for this, but again, for the, for the pastor, seminary student, lay person, it, there's nothing like it. And so that, that is why I wanted to do it to try to introduce this, this, this paradigm or this, um, the paradigm is not the right word for it, but essentially approach the subject the way scripture approaches it, that in the primeval history, we've got three, three cataclysmic events that, that frame the entirety for who opposes God, why God is opposed, what the agenda is, how it affects humanity, all these questions that we deal with when, when it comes to evil. You know, if you ask the average Christian, hey, why the world is, why is the world such a mess? You know, why do we have all this evil and sin and depravity and suffering and all that? You know, what, why? The average answer you would get is, oh, that's the fall. It's Genesis 3. If you ask the same question to a literate Israelite and a literate Second Temple Jew, in other words, people who actually read this stuff, okay, read their own scriptures and, and what, you know, the educated religious leaders are writing about the scriptures, it, that isn't the answer you would get. They wouldn't say Genesis 3 and the conversation stops there. They would say, well, you know, there's actually three reasons why the world is such a mess. You know, evil rebellion enters the world in Genesis 3, that's for sure, because we've got a supernatural rebel there, and we've got you know, humanity rebelling, and we, you know, the results of that are terrible. There's something about being human that you know, leads us to sin and, you know, we're estranged from God. We're all going to die now. So we, we, we lost our immortality. Eden is destroyed. Okay, we get that. But then there's this other thing happening in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, really 1 through 5, that contributes directly to human depravity. Now, I say 1 through 4 and then add verse 5 for a reason. If you've ever read Genesis 6, 1 through 4, it's the weird, you know, sons of God, daughters of men, Nephilim passage. And the, the, the bad guys there are the sons of God. So how in the world do we get from verses one through four to verse five? And God saw that the wickedness of mankind was great upon the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There doesn't seem to be any relationship between the first four verses and verse five. But if you know the original backstory to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, i.e. the Apkalu story from Mesopotamia that the biblical writer is shooting at for theological purposes. If you know what, what his target is in the original story, it makes complete sense. It will answer the question of why in the Second Temple period you had Jews link Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sin of the watchers or the sin of the son of, sons of God with human depravity. If, if you wanted to do a study of depravity, and several scholars have, in Second Temple Judaism, they don't blame Adam for it. They blame the influence of intelligent supernatural beings who taught humans basically how to destroy themselves more effectively and turn to idolatry. And those bad guys are the sons of God from Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Now, you don't get any of that in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, because the writers assume that you know the backstory, because they're writing to people who lived when they lived. They're not writing to us. So we have to recover that. And the way that that has been possible is through work in Mesopotamian texts and seeing, here's a key thought, seeing where the content of those Mesopotamian texts was known in the Second Temple period among Jews, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
And then realizing that, oh, this is why they're looking at it the way they're looking at it. They knew this other backstory. Mm-hmm. It makes sense now. So when when we and then, re- the th- and then the third rebellion is what happens at Babel. That's the Deuteronomy thirty two worldview. Those are the principalities and the powers. They are not demons. The demons of the Gospels. The demons of the Gospels are connected back to the Genesis six incident. But again, they're very low level. They turn people into flesh puppets. You know, big deal. Okay, you you know you harm and harass people, but the the principalities and the powers, you know, the fallen sons of God to whom the nations were assigned at Babel and who are the princes of Daniel 10. These are the bigger players. This is the more epic problem because they control most of the world, the Gentile nations, because they've been judged by God. And it's up to Israel, who fails miserably, to be a conduit of blessing to, to, for them to come back to the true God. I mean, this, those three things frame the entirety of the rest of the Bible. A little glimpse of that, the Apkalu story, but the Demons book really drills down on it. Reversing Hermon, which is another book I did, uh, drills down on it as well. But what you have is all of the Jewish traditions are, are in agreement here, where you've got the Sons of God, i.e. the Watchers, you know, which is an Aramaic term found in Daniel 4, but it's more it's used more prevalently in the Second Temple period. They you know, transgress the boundary between heaven and earth, they father these Nephilim. Okay, that much we have in the, in the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 passage. In Jewish and these tradition, are not principalities. These are not the principalities and powers. The principalities and powers are geographical entities that rule the nations. That's going to come yes. later in Babel. Okay. Same term, but different group. Different group, because sons of God is a... a a term of hierarchy used for members of the heavenly host who operate at a certain level. They have a certain status. Okay. So all Jewish traditions agree that what happened then is, you know, God decides, well, you know, we got it. We're going to send the flood. We're going to cleanse the earth from, you know, all this problem. And it's not just, you know, the sons of God, because the other thing that the sons of God do is they teach people certain things like the art of warfare, arts of seduction, astrology, idolatry, far, you know, pharmacopoeia. You, you, you ever ask yourself, why would Paul connect demonic activity with drugs? Well, it's, this is part of the tradition. It goes all the way back to the Second Temple period, where these are things that, that the, you have to think, think of it this way, that supernatural beings have a greater intelligence about what goes on just generally in the spirit world, they know what, what, what the fabric of creation is, is about because again, if you read Jewish texts, you know, that different supernatural beings are tasked with different sort of knowledge bases, you know, different areas of expertise or guardianship that you're not supposed to let humans learn this or that thing. Okay. You're not supposed to, you know, to have certain access to certain knowledge. Well, again, in, in both in the Apkalu story and then in, in the Second Temple Jewish, you know, telling of the story that draws upon Genesis 6 as well. The sons of God not only come and transgress, you know, the, the boundary between heaven and earth to specifically raise up imagers for themselves. In other words, other people groups who would oppose Yahweh's people. That we see in the Old Testament with the giant clans. But they also teach humanity, again, how to destroy themselves more effectively because humans are the enemy. 
they also teach you know people about themselves. They they want they solicit people to worship them, to turn hearts you know toward idolatry and away from the true God. Again, have you ever wondered, biblically speaking, why everybody who sort of knows about the true God, by the time you get to Genesis 11, now we have idolaters with Abraham's parents. How does that happen? Like, like what happened there? I mean, there's, there's like nothing else in the story. Huh? Well, yes, there is. It's just the writer is presuming a certain knowledge base. So the Genesis 6 stuff directly contributes to the depravity of, of people. Now, God says we got to send the flood. We got to you know, do something with this. And again, that much we're familiar with because of Genesis 6, verse 5. And so that doesn't sound foreign to our ears. But along with that, you know, sending the flood for that reason, we also have to get rid of these giants, all right? We have to take care of, of, of all these problems. And so that's what precipitates the flood. Now, in the Jewish mind, when you killed, when either one of the archangels, they get sent to, you know, do battle with, with the big bad guys, the Nephilim. When one of them was killed by the flood or some other means, their disembodied spirit became known as a demon or a bastard spirit, which is a phrase used in Dead Sea Scrolls, and you get hints of it in the New Testament, and also unclean spirit. There's actually a whole dissertation on where does the phrase unclean spirits come from. They're, they're called unclean not because they get their hands dirty or because they do, you know, hygiene. <laughs> it's not why they're unclean. They didn't use why the right things, hand sanitizer. Right. They didn't use the right hand sanitizer. Okay. Why are things called unclean in the Old Testament? You have to ask yourself that question. There are a number of reasons. One of them is forbidden mixture. Okay. That is what we're dealing with here with unclean spirits. They are the product of forbidden unions. Mm. And this language does show up in the gospels along with, you know, like the bastard spirit, that's what they are. You know, they're, they're a mixture, okay? So all of these terms are attributed to, to demonic entities, those entities that are now disembodied, the original offending sons of God in all the traditions, including the New Testament, Peter and Jude, are punished by sending them to the abyss until the time of the end. This is why P what Peter alludes to about the angels that sin being sent to hell or Tartarus or whatever, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that's where they are. First Peter three, you know, preaching to the spirits in prison and all that kind of stuff. So that much we have, you know, we, we just don't have the whole picture, you know, in the new Testament, but you get the, 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 the origin of demons is they are the disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim. That's why they seek re-embodiment. That's why they possess. They want to be re-embodied. Now you say, well, where is any of that in the Bible? You get hints of it, believe it or not, in the old Testament. Where? Well, you have to realize that the term Rephaim in the Old Testament was not like in Canaanite literature. That term was just used of great warriors of renown, like, like deity, quasi-deity kings, you know, in, in the different populations like Ugard or Mesopotamia or whatever. Rephaim in the Bible is used for those guys. That's Isaiah 14 language. But it's also used of guys that inhabit Sheol, the underworld. Isaiah 14 does that as well. Ezekiel 32. You know, there, there's a handful of passages that have the Rephaim in hell. Okay. I mean, in, in the underworld, this is where they live. This is, this is their domain. This is where they belong. Just like where we would think of the New Testament, this is where demons live, right? They, they come out, they pop out, they possess some people for a while, then they get punished and go back or whatever. This is 
you know, this idea that you find in the New Testament that basically never gets examined. I mean, people ask, you know, where do demons come from? And nobody seems to have an answer because they haven't read all this other literature. Again, a second temple Jew would go, well, duh, where were you in school? You know, uh, you know how did you miss out? Um, I mean, they, they would have an answer for this, but, but that's what a demon is. And it, some of this is reflected in, you know, some of the things Jesus says or what happens in some of these encounters and whatnot, some of the vocabulary. But there's, those are different than the principalities and powers. Those are the sons of God who transgress in the wake of the Babel event. I, I, I still do not believe that when God appoints the sons of God and assigns them to the nations at Babel, I, I, I don't think that they're bad guys then. I think that they are just normal members of the heavenly host. And for some reason, they, I, they're free will beings, so that's part of it. But some become bad, some, some less some, bad. Well, what, what they do, you have to look at Psalm 82 and ask yourself, why is God angry with them? And it's very clear why God is angry with them because they sow chaos among the nations. Deuteronomy 32, a few verses after, you know, verses 8 and 9, has the territorial entities, the Shadim, which unfortunately English Bibles translate as demons. It, it, you know, the, the term is a territorial entity, which makes perfect sense because of the sons of God thing, you know, the, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. But they seduce the Israelites into worshiping them. So they, they are willing to have people not worship the Most High, but to worship them. God still wants humans ruled justly, even though they're, they don't have the law. They're not the sons of Abraham. They're, you know, why would, why would God care about them? Two reasons. One, they're human imagers. They're still in the image of God. And second, they've been included in the covenant made with Abraham. It's Israel's job to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, to be a light that, that beckons them back into the fold, you know, to, to turn their back on these other gods and worship the most high. So from a very early time period, this is not going well. The, the, they enslave the, their populations. They sow chaos among the nations. They turn their hearts to idolatry. By the time you get to Daniel 10, you know, that's where you get the Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece. In other words, look, just look at that. Everybody knows about this passage. Does anybody ask, hey, where did we get this idea that there are supernatural intelligences called princes over the nations? Where did that come from? It's like nobody asked the question. And it's an obvious question. And if anybody in church probably, you know, would ever ask the question, unless you've come across Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9, you have no answer. Yeah. Okay. It's just that simple. You don't have any answer. Again, an ancient person would know exactly how to parse that question. So if would, without even blinking, they, they would get it. But but you get them, you get the princes, and, and then that language you know becomes part of Paul's vocabulary to describe the principalities, rulers, dominions, thrones, all that stuff, which are all geographical dominion terms. So that I mean, and, and even that factors into other points of New Testament theology, Pentecost, the New Eden. I mean, it's once you see it, it it just it just extends out into other things. That, that, again, this is, and this is what Unseen Realm does. Again, it's not an end point. It's a beginning point. But you begin to see how all these concepts in these passages, how they interlink with one another. And so when I, you know, when I get pushed back, you know, from scholars, it's like, you know, Genesis 6. or It's like, look, I, I know it, it looks to you like you've got a really workable interpretation of Genesis 6. You know, ruler marriages, the Sethites or whatever. That looks wonderful, you know. And, and you know, to, to be honest with you, I'm not looking, 
I'm not saying that the mo that the best interpretation is the most supernatural one, but here's what I am saying. The best interpretation is the one that not only works right here, it works everywhere else that this passage hooks into and yours doesn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is where I'm going with this. I want comprehensive coherence. I don't want an interpretation that just makes, that just looks like it works. So now we don't have to think about the passage anymore because this passage is going to service other passages. And if your view doesn't help there, doesn't work and even contradicts, you have the problem. I don't. Okay. So you just have to sort of deal with that and live with it. And I, I know why people are uncomfortable with the, you know, the supernatural view of Genesis six. I was there for many years. I get it. I understand it. But at the end of the day, it's like ancient people and, you know, thought about this entirely differently. And, and for me, it, it has become kind of an issue of biblical authority that, that I need to honor what these people are saying, especially under inspiration, like Peter and Jude. Do I have the right to say Peter and Jude were wrong? I don't think I do. That's good. So, so let me, uh, a couple things, I just want to make for clarification. You would say something to the effect of Genesis had a, the author of Genesis had a purpose, an intention in mind to communicate a story. Of I know that that's in, an outlandish proposition. I know, it's crazy, right? Writers had purposes. Yeah. It's crazy talk, but, I know. But of his, of his purpose, his intention of writing, the Sons of God uh, section wasn't a part of that that plan. He was uh, trying to track the seed of the woman. He was trying to explain the nature of man, to explain why they're captivated in Egypt, so forth and so on. You would say that that seems to be uh, contrary to the sons of God language and that that sons of God language can be found elsewhere. We talk about the angels and the demons. The the angels, uh, the sons of God seem to be principalities who sow. Uh, you know, we see in Jesus that someone has sown in the field and the wheat and the tares are growing up together. Uh, so so these, these principalities seem to have more influence and control. Uh, when we talk about demons, or would you suggest that the, the primary difference between demonic forces and angelic forces that are that are both fallen that the demonic forces seem to afflict to demonize to wound to hurt yeah. to bruise whereas these if, if, other forces seem organized uh that are able to teach and educate i think that's and, one yeah let's take the last part first i think that's one difference uh, again if demons are the disembodied spirits of the dead nephilim they are somewhat lesser you know, in terms of being derivative of ontology or, or, or contingent you know ontologically speaking yeah so they would they would sort of be lower on the pecking order even it and it, it's because they were at one time imprisoned they were embodied and and there's this there's this notion and it's drawn from psalm 8 and a few other passages about you know when when humans are described as being created a little lesser a little lower than the elohim in psalm 8 you know again it's a, it's another reference to elohim just as a general term you would use for divine beings the reason that they're deemed lower or lesser is because they're embodied they have limitations and so in if if we if we were discussing powers of darkness ontology demons would be a little lower on the pecking order for that reason. Now, they're still spirit beings, uh, but they were at one point lesser because of their embodiment. Um, but that, that would be to them their natural estate. You know, and so the, the thinking was, you know, again, within, from antiquity on, onward now, I mean, this isn't you know, new to, to you know, some modern thinkers, that the reason they, they possess is because this is their natural estate and this is what they want to return to. This is... This is normal for them, um, if we could put it that way. 
But the other ones were never under such limitations. They are in their minds, you know, by definition, the ones who would be above humans, you know, in Psalm 8, by virtue of Psalm 8, that kind of thought, that kind of thinking. This is actually a significant thing to discuss because of the incarnation. I mean, we, we know it's a demotion. Okay. Yeah. We get it. But it's also a demotion in the eyes of the spirit world as well. You know, this, this is a, a, an intentional delimiting of, of who you are and really it, it's a condescending thing to do. You know, there, I think we can get some good preaching fodder out, out of that just because, again, it, it, it's just a little bit of uh, – it's an added nuance to what we already know, you know, about the incarnation. But, but this is something that ripples through a theology of the supernatural world, you know, in, in early Judaism. And whatnot. This is why some, again, some Jews would have stumbled at the thought that the Messiah, you know, God would become a man. Well, how does that make any sense? I mean, again, and we and we could we could pick at them and say, well, look, in your Old Testament, God comes as a man there. But yeah, that well, that's not incarnation, though. This is this is a little more serious, a little more offensive. Embodiment, yeah. You know, so again, there's there's this kind of thing going on. It's it's an undercurrent, you know, to the discussion. So there, there's that difference. I think there's also a difference in in what they wind up in, in terms of the the sons of God of, of the Babel event. They were originally tasked to rule the nations. They had that authority, you know, given to them by the Most High, and they abuse it. They distort it and abuse it and turn it to their own their own benefit. They do not shepherd humanity the way God wants humans shepherds shepherded. And they solicit and accept worship that belongs only to the Most High. So they had a specifically significant status from the get-go. Now that is nullified in the New Testament. You know, this is why Paul, in half a dozen passages, he links the nullification of the authority of the principalities, powers, the rulers, and the thrones, etc., with the resurrection and the ascension. He does that intentionally. Again, that, that's odd to us because when we think about resurrection, we think about self-improvement. Oh, I get a new body. I don't, I'm not going to be this anymore. I'm not going to be sick. or I'm going to be you know, better than I am now. And, and all that's true. But again, why does half a dozen times Paul thinks, that, thinks about resurrection? Then he, his mind goes over here to the nullification, the stripping away of the authority of the principalities. Why would he think that? You know, it's because the Most High, who set up that authority arrangement, has stripped away their, that authority by becoming a man, fulfilling all the covenants, dying on a cross, rising again, and ascending to the right hand of power. All authority is given to him. This is the, the missing verse in the Great Commission. We think Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Hey, there's verse 18. All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Okay. So he takes back the authority over the nations. The Most High says, hey, you know, yeah, I gave you guys authority at one time, but guess what? Kiss that goodbye. Because now, you know, I am here to restore and reclaim the nations. So the guy who gave you the authority has just taken it away. Out of, out of curiosity, is, does that also play into the already and not yet? Like in Hebrews, yes. it says that all things yes. have been subject under his feet, and yet we don't see yet all yes. things subject. Uh, 
Absolutely. It, it, already but not yet is an important thread, not only in that, but some of these other things. You know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven is an already but not yet thing. That that statement is not referring back to Genesis 3 because the, the, the rebel was already cast down. Okay. Mm-hmm. It refers to, you know, that since, since it's said in conjunction with, I get it just, just get the imagery here. I mean, it's just casting out demons, right? Casting out demons, sending out the 70 or 72, depending on if you use the Septuagint or the Masoretic text, but it all refers to the same thing. Genesis 10, Deuteronomy yeah. 32 worldview. So you got the casting out of demons. You've got the sending out of the 70 and the announcement of what the kingdom of God has come among you. So the whole point with I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven is to, in effect to say the kingdom of God, the king, this is back to Eden. And if you're the Lord of the dead, remember what Genesis 3 caused, estrangement from God and the loss of, more, of immortality. If you are a member of this kingdom, that dude has no power and authority over you at all. Okay, so... He doesn't need to even show up anymore and accuse the brethren. That doesn't mean he won't try, but he's got, he's a, he's a prosecutor without a case. He's got nothing to stand on. If you are a member of this kingdom, which means you're a member of Christ's body, which is a concept that expresses it later, the same thought just expressed in a different metaphor. This guy has nothing because you're going to rise from the dead. There goes the Lord of the dead thing. Oops, <laughs> loses you. Okay. You know, you're never, you're not going to end up in shield. You're not going to be obedient to him. He's got, he means nothing. He's nothing. He has no authority at all. It wasn't until I was a doctoral student that I came across Deuteronomy 32.8 in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because everywhere else, it's like, when the Most High divided the nations, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of Israel. Like, there's nothing to see there. But when it says sons of God, you divide them up according to the sons of God, and then you start reading, and it takes you back to Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20, where it uses allotment language. The gods allotted to the nations, and Yahweh takes Israel for his own. And then you go to Deuteronomy 17, and you go to Deuteronomy 29, and you wind up in Deuteronomy 32 again. It's like, holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> like what? Babel actually means something. <laughs> Wait, I want to I flesh this out. I don't want to miss this. Uh, I, I want you to talk about, so today for, for the average believer who's fulfilling the Great Commission, it's just like the 70 or 72, depending on which mm-hmm. version you're using, uh, is going out into the world to share the gospel. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the way this fleshes out is that we should be doing the exact same things, that we cast out demons. Uh, that we're proclaiming the the good news about the kingdom of heaven coming and and uh, it, it overcoming the power of the enemy. Um, help me out more. Yeah, elaborate. I, yeah, I, I would. The short answer is yeah, yeah. You know, there's no reason to suspect, you know, that that we're not living in the same world, even though the West, the modern West, doesn't recognize it. The world hasn't changed. It is still under dominion, whether we believe it or see it or care about it or pay any attention to it or not. Um, what I tell people, because I get asked, you know, well, what, you know, what should I do if I run into this situation or demons or something? You know, it's like, look, 
you remember who the authority really is. Yes, you know, you've been, you've been granted the, the status as, as one of the children of God to function as God's imager and those who are redeemed, you know, are the ones who are actually capable of doing that in a fallen world. And Jesus did say that, that you would and could do these things. But you always have to, to remember who the actual authority is. You never trust in yourself. You never appeal to your own authority. Um, and, and what you do just generally is speak truth to lie. Yeah. Do they think they can beat God? Eh, probably not. <laughs> okay. So, so what are they doing? Well, God has linked the end of days, which is their final destination, their final destiny, to this thing called the fullness of the Gentiles, i.e. the Great Commission. The fullness of the Gentiles, yeah, granted, only God knows when that is fulfilled, when that's up, but that's linked to the revival, the reawakening of Israel, and then the end will come. So if they can forestall this is this is spirit, you know spiritual warfare for them. If they can impede the Great Commission, if they can forestall the fullness of the Gentiles, they can go on indefinitely. That's the game plan. It's not complicated. It's actually in Scripture if you really think about it. Um, and so, frankly, they're pretty effective at that. Honestly, they are. So, spiritual warfare—that you know, getting to the heart of what they fear—is fulfillment of the Great Commission. That, 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 that's the end. That, that, that spells the end. So the more we can do to, you know, free the captive, you know, free people who are in spiritual bondage, the better. One kingdom grows, the other one declines. Oh, hi. I know you missed me. I missed you guys too. But I thought you should hear from someone other than me. Because, you know, you're sick of me. At this point, I love what John and Tim have been doing for many years on The Bible Project. If you're not up on that podcast, you definitely want to go over and subscribe to The Bible Project. I've probably been following them for seven to eight years, as well as, you know, get anything from Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, The Unseen Realm, Angels, Demons, Reversing Hormone. Uh, man, this guy is, uh, he is just a wealth of knowledge and so humble. He's really turning academia around. Thankfully, I ran headfirst into him and his work uh, about six years ago, and it changed my life, guys. It changed the way I, my entire perspective of the Bible. I feel like, I feel like I couldn't even I feel like a whole new Bible was presented to me once I started thinking like an ancient Hebrew. <laughs> because you have to remember that, yes, the Bible was, you know, written for us. Don't get me wrong. But but it it was truly written for the ancient Israelite and the New Testament was written for the Second Temple Jew. So there's so many things we miss in our 2020, uh, you know, Western culture, we don't even understand, and we have missed the meanings. So, I hope that, you know, what I put together here, uh, and all credit to them, uh, also the podcast, the Naked Bible Podcast, which is Michael Heiser's, uh, I've listened to that for years. The Naked Bible Podcast is tremendous. The Bible Project as well. Again, I never use anyone else's audio without... um showing them, showing you where to go for them. I'll put those in the show notes on juliandown.buzzsprout.com as well.
I hope what I've been trying to say over and over in a million different ways, whether we're talking about conspiracies or whether we're talking about demonic things or whether we're talking about uh, prophecy, I hope you see that I'm always weaving together a centralized picture that ties the Bible together from Genesis to the end times, that you guys understand something extremely important, that we went from creation to the fall immediately into the incursion on Gen- in Genesis 6 on Mount Hermon with the fallen angels cohabitating with human women, bringing about Nephilim giants, demigods, part divine, part human. They corrupt all flesh on the earth, animals included. I always say, I believe this is where we get some dinosaur action because they just look like nothing else we've ever seen. The whole earth's corrupted. Right when the Bible story starts, it has to be flooded and reset. The Tower of Babel happens where everyone comes together defying God's orders to go out and subdue the earth. They come together as one to bring back the old gods. God sees them and God tells his divine counsel, if we do not stop this now, there is nothing they will not be able to do. Now you think about that coming from Yahweh, species unique. He sends his fallen, not his fallen angels, I'm sorry, he he sends angels out territorially to start these nations and oversee them, but they fall as well. This is where we start seeing the same kind of pyramids popping up on impossible uh, continents that are identical, uh, carvings in, in, you know, caves or old stones or whatever of of ancient gods, cradle headboarding. Uh, This is where we start seeing all of that happen in places that we could not ha- could not have possibly known each other it's because these gods all started falling and well making people worship them and sacrifice babies humans to them god says enough of this and he creates a nation that is going to be his chosen nation one that can come and subdue what these gods sent out to be territorial over the earth have corrupted. Do you see? He sends Israel to conquer them, and that they do. But over time in the Old Testament, they fall and they fall to other gods. The nation of Israel falls and is no more. Hundreds of years pass And God is dead silent when ripping out of that quiet second temple time comes John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, Yeshua, who you know what he does in his life. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus knows what he needs to do. He climbs back up on that ancient mountain where that incursion happened so long ago, Mount Hermon, where we see the transfiguration and we see where the Catholic Church has diverted us greatly. Upon this rock, I will build my church. He's not talking about Peter. He's talking 
about this mountain. He's saying, God, Jesus is saying, as he is transfigured, guys, he's been hiding, he's been dodging Satan, who's been trying to kill him. You know the whole ancient bloodline. He decides to be transfigured on Mount Hermon. Come on, guys. And he says, upon this rock, this place that was desecrated, this thing, this abomination, the cohabitation between fallen angels and human women that corrupted this place that brought so much death and destruction, the cutting of roots, pharmacia, the art of war, all of it. Upon this rock, I will build my church and I will conquer them. He's transfigured. He's not hiding anymore. He is here to say, I am Yeshua, son of Yahweh. And he's blazing. Within days, he's dead. There was no more hiding. He's resurrected and the church is born. We get ancient gods all over the place still being worshipped in names of Apollo and Mercury. We have Greek gods. We have Roman gods. They're all the same gods. We have Mayan gods. They're all the same ones of those 70 that went out, guys. <laughs> those, those angels didn't die. They're still corrupting. We have all these gods being worshipped. They're the same gods. They're just called different things from different cultures. And it's all about the Tower of Babel. It's all about bringing back the old gods. Guys, you have to wake up and understand what happened in 1948. That the nation of Israel was once again reborn out of a complete holocaust. An impossibility that one of the strongest nations on the earth today was born out of a near-extinction event thanks to a wannabe Antichrist. Listen to me. It is no mistake that NASA and CERN are doing things right now, and everything that they're doing has the name of these old gods attached to it, whether it's their rockets or their missions or their tests or where they even put CERN to bring back these old gods. There's a lot of different names NASA could be using rather than the ones they choose to. The same of Elon Musk. They're all going for the same thing. Resurrect the old gods. The book of Revelation, John the Revelator, is shown that it indeed is going to work. As Apollyon comes out of Tartarus in the end times where they've been chained up since this Genesis 6 incursion. It was that bad. The pit is going to be opened in the end times. And they are going to come out with this roaring flame and sulfur. Uh, sulfur. The skies will be darkened and they will terrorize the earth once again. This is not fairy tales. If you're a Christian and you like safe living and safe learning, I actually feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for you. That's not what we're called for. We're called to dig. We're called to understand. And we're called to know that the supernatural is here and it's roaring back on our scene. It's all throughout the Bible. I hope this changes the way you see everything because we fight with the one who will conquer all.